0: I'm James Griffin and this is the Mission Motorsport podcast, aimed squarely at our beneficiaries as an engagement tool first and foremost, but also anyone who wants to know more about the community that we serve. These podcasts are open, honest and frank conversations with beneficiaries, friends and supporters of the Forces Motorsport Charity. expect conversations sometimes to be of a mature nature. Today I'm talking to British polar explorer, athlete and petrolhead Ben Saunders. Ben is one of the world's leading polar explorers and a record-breaking long-distance skier who has covered more than 4,350 miles on foot in the polar regions since 2001. His accomplishments include skiing solo to both the North and South Poles and leading the Scott Expedition, the longest human-powered polar journey in history, the first completion of the expedition that defeated Captain Scott and Sir Ernest Shackleton, a 105-day round trip from Ross Island on the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole and back again. Ben is a global brand ambassador for Land Rover and Canada Goose, an ambassador for the Prince's Trust, a patron and fellow of British Exploring, a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and an acclaimed keynote speaker described by Ted, where he has spoken three times as a master storyteller. Ben is a long-time supporter of Mission Motorsport and I wanted to dig deeper than previous interviews that Ben has done to truly understand what drives an individual to push themselves to the absolute limit. Ben Saunders, thank you so much for joining us on the Mission Motorsport podcast. Um, very much appreciated, I know you're a busy man. Um, but firstly, we need to talk about beards. Um, we're both sporting <laughs> uh, ginger beards. Um, how many days or months growth have you got there?
1: Oh gosh, yeah, months, months, years, probably a couple of years. Um, it's, It's actually... It's actually got to the point. I, I think one of the things I, I love about having the same hairstyle as you is that it's just zero maintenance. You just, I just, you know, once a week, get the clippers out, and um, I just wake up, it looks the same. I don't have to, you know, bother with a you know, comb or anything. And I've suddenly got to the point where actually my beard needs a bit of looking after. Like it suddenly, you wake up in the morning, it's a bit, you know, sticking out. So, but I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite liking it actually. Um, it's beard oil moisturizer. Yeah, yeah mm, well, I'm glad we're glad we're getting into that. Yeah. Um, be, Beard oil. Someone, someone recommended it to me years ago, and they're like, they're like, it's not for your beard; it's for the skin underneath. Yeah, and skin that's, underneath. That's yeah, it yeah, gets. In, and, and a lot of mates of mine have like tried to grow beards, and like, it's all itchy. or don't you? Know, I'm like, no, beard oil, my head. Go <laughs> wash it, you <laughs> trump. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I have a really rigorous uh, washing regime. You know, so first I'll get the, I'll get the the. I'll tap my face with the charcoal rub um and then I'll I'll really get in there with the, the beard and, and hair shampoo. Not even that I've got any hair on my head. Um and then I'll stick conditioner in it and I'll let that soak yeah. it and feed it and nourish it. And then everything else gets washed and then when I get out, you know
1: Rinse, dry, like oil. exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Have you got? I've got. I've got a little. I've got a little, I've got a beard brush as well. That's a good, good little. Ah, little,
0: nice. Yeah. yeah. See, my wife keeps having a go at me
1: because <laughs> I keep stealing her brush to brush my beard. <laughs> I think my wife wondered what was going on a couple of years ago when I committed to the full beard. Like suddenly her. her her sort of very expensive, I'm sure, shampoo and conditioner started. You know, she's like, "What, what else is this?" Going <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> I don't know, but my beard is glorious. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's this. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Ben, oh, let's
1: start? You,
0: you don't like being called a polar explorer, do you?
1: I d- I never know what to call myself, really. I'm quite envious of, of mates of mine who are, you know, climbers or mountaineers or sailors, or because it's kind of obvious what they did. There's there's a there's a good simple term for it, but yeah, explorer. Explorer sounds a bit a bit grand, a bit wanky. It's a bit it's a bit like bit like I don't know, being in the army and saying you're a warrior. You know, someone else might say that of, of you at some point, but you wouldn't put it on your business card, you know. So I don't know. I yeah, I just long, long, long distance skier. I don't know. I I normally say that I lead expeditions, which confuses people even more because then they're like, oh, who do you lead on it? Like, well, go on my own some of the time, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So athlete would athlete be appropriate? I, I, I think so. Yeah, and, and in a, in a weird way, looking back, I and mean, I've been doing this for twenty years now. Um, that that's to me that that that's where if I can call myself an an explorer in any genuine sense of the word I'm I'm not clearly I'm not drawing maps or naming glasses or mountain like that that's all been done you can you can go on google street view and look around the American base at the South Pole now so I'm not I'm not chart you know charting sort of unknown territory kind of in a geographical sense um but but to me I think the appeal even early on was just this seemed like such a bonkers challenge from from a kind of physical, mental point of view. And I, and I think for, for me the the kind of zenith was 2013-2014 was when um, my teammate Tark and I walked from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole back to the coast again, 18, 1,800 miles, so 69 marathons back to back. Um, and we were dragging 200 kilos each. So that's, that's basically two fat blokes in a bathtub on a bit of rope behind you for, for nearly 70 marathons in the coldest place on earth. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so there's, there's part of me that's always loved um I, I don't know sort of physical challenges like difficult things and, and this to me seemed like the, the sort of the highest rung of the ladder that i could aspire to
0: so before we get to that let's mm. talk about a young ben saunders <laughs> uh where did he grow up where did he go to school mm. etc i know you talked about it before
1: yeah i, I was born in plymouth um I'm a west country lad deep down um and uh my dad i i sound a lot posher than i actually am my my my, my real dad my biological father was it was a bricklayer um he was an orphan he had no there's no no family tree on his side at all grew up in a home never knew his parents and um he he and my mum divorced when i was very small five i think four and a half five years old um and he was sort of on the scene for a bit my mum remarried but i never really got on with my stepfather there was about 10 years so so we had this sort of quite Itinerant. I have a younger brother, two two and a half years younger than me, and um, we moved around a lot as kids. Um, we sort of, I guess, I was eleven or twelve. We we moved from Devon, Somerset to Kent. Um, I think I went to six or seven different schools, so we were sort of on on the road a lot. And I, I know that's that's for you'll have a lot of veterans students. Like that's not uncommon for for people that have grown up in a, in a sort of forces household to be you know on the road. But I think looking back, like it's funny, my wife you know went to like the same school. And she went to university. I, I never got that far. I'm still on my still on my gap year, age age 42 and a half. Um, but um, she's got these sort of really tight knit groups of friends that she's known forever, and I, I I don't have those. That's sort of one of my regrets. But um, one one things I'm, I'm I'm really in hindsight really grateful for was was that my brother and I grew up in in the middle of nowhere in like rural Devon and Somerset, and we were sort of right. I think the border was through our garden almost um and we didn't have a lot of money but my my stepdad was a gamekeeper so we had this sort of outdoorsy life and we were always eating you know sort of bizarre things that he brought in you know pheasant and venison and god knows what else we had a next door neighbor were a dairy farm so my first ever job i got 50p a week um to walk up this track to the farm with my little milk churn in the morning and get the milk and bring it back for breakfast so we had in some ways quite, quite a sort of wholesome idyllic outdoorsy childhood i i i was I probably had ADHD, but I'm I'm so old now that that wasn't really around when I was a kid. But um, I I didn't didn't respond well to being told to sit down and show up in a classroom and, and remember stuff. Like to me, the the, the exciting things happened outdoors. Um, so I think that's that's where the sort of you know the screws started started coming loose. And I was in the Scouts, and yeah, you know, loved 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 going camping and hiking, Dartmoor, Exmoor, that kind of thing. So yeah, quite so, quite outdoorsy.
0: So why did you decide that the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst was a <laughs> good idea?
1: Yeah, I I I blame it um, uh, in in some part on uh, a guy that I worked for on uh, at the time. It, this was still supposed to be a gap here. I didn't see it going on indefinitely. But I how old were left, you? Uh, forty forty three now. No no. How um, old were you so, then? Oh how old was I then? So I was like this was late sort of 18, 18, 19... So I took I I completely messed up. I got a C and two Ds at A level and didn't yet. Yeah. And um, <laughs> well, at least you got A level. I got well, exactly. Yes, yeah, scraped so through somehow. And um and I I I wanted to go travelling but didn't have any money. So I I I got a job for six months and sort of worked through through the summer and and. Um, saved some money went to Nepal and just did some hiking around the Himalayas with some mates and just loved that that was the first time I'd sort of been abroad on my own and been in the big mountains and that was a yeah epic trip and um and I came back and I'm trying to think what I'd I think my brother and i had seen a tv documentary years before that as 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 kids um about a guy called John Ridgway who I haven't spoken to for years he must be in his 80s now but he um he was ex Paras, ex special forces, used to box for England. Um he was along with Chay Blythe, the first person to, to well they were the first people to row Across the Atlantic, 1966, so wooden wooden boat from Boston to Ireland. That was 19, a proper proper wooden boat, wasn't proper, it? And he still got the boat in a shed up up in the Scottish Highlands. It 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 looks like it looks like the kind of thing that you'd rent on the Serpentine. Like it's it's literally a, a wooden open boat with two benches, and they had a they had a sort of tarpaulin at one end that they would in turns to sleep under, and that blew away, I think, after the first two or three weeks. So they were yeah three months in this boat crossing the Atlantic, two hurricanes. I think it was just epic. And this is this is, you know, sixty so before this is before GPS, before freeze dried food, any any of that stuff. So um so i I'd, I'd yeah, I saw this Channel Four made a documentary about um what he was doing after all these big expeditions and, and his military career. And he'd he'd somehow got some land up in the right up in the northwest corner of the Scottish Highlands and um started and again I think this was from the mid seventies, so just before I was born. Uh, what, what he called the John Ridgway School of Adventure, and it was it was like a sort of outward bound centre on on steroids. Um, it's an extraordinary place. Um, he never did any marketing or advertising; it was all word of mouth. and And, um, and I ended up um, basically applying for a job. Um, my brother and I both wanted to do it. He's a bit younger than me. We went to the library, found the found the sort of Highlands and Islands Yellow Pages, found his address, and and, and wrote to him. And um, yeah, to my amazement, I, I had some pretty basic sort of I might have had a, a certificate to say I could tie a few knots and do like elementary kind of instruction at climbing or kayaking or whatever it was. But I ended up spending the best part of a year working up there as as one of his instructors. So I, I would have been eighteen, nineteen. Um and that was a kind of seminal time for me because I was I was part of a small group of, of gosh, seven, eight, nine instructors I guess. Um and all late teens, early twenties love the outdoors and we were just outside the whole time leading courses in the the mountains you know sailing kayaking climbing abseiling um and and this was pre-internet as well so so if we weren't out out in the proper outdoors we were reading books or eating or sleeping it was just this incredible period of my life and and john was um just i mean I, i kind of applied for the job because he 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 to me seemed like this larger than life superhero and and he ended up becoming just the most amazing um, sort of mentor, really. Just, just he's he's super humble. Um, he hates PR. Doesn't do any interviews. I tried to get him to the interview a couple of years ago. He's like, no, I don't do don't do interviews. Um, so he's quite a private person. And and as you'd expect, like living up in the Highlands, a mile and a half away from the nearest, nearest road. Um, but um, he was a, a yeah, genuinely inspiring person to to, to spend time with. And I read lots that year as well, and 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 the stuff that really, that really got me excited was was a the sort of Edwardian Scott Shackleton, Amundsen, Nansen kind of polar explorers, and and b the sort of the the the, the, the British characters from not that long ago. There's obviously Rannald Fines, there's there's Robert Swan, Chris Bonington, yeah those do yeah all those all those climbers, Doug Scott, Dougal Haston. So so I just loved that. Just caught my imagination, and and I kind of came away from that year thinking this is what I want to do somehow, but John was in the army, you know, he'd been an army officer, Chris Bollington was army officer, Ronald Fines was an army officer, you know, they, they'd all seem to, that that to me as a teenager, that was, I was like, okay, well, that's, that's the, that's the path I've got to follow. So, um, so I sort of sent in my application and, and, and um, I, this obviously was a few years ago, but I don't think to changed now, but they, they, they almost exclusively wanted graduates. And I somehow managed to kind of sweet talk my way through the, through the interview process and saying, "No, I've done this done this year with John Ridgway. That was that was better than any degree." Um, so I, I loved the I loved the challenge of trying to get in. I've always loved being the sort of underdog, kind of up, up against it. So I really relished that challenge of tr- trying to get into the army when I didn't have any, yeah, didn't have any family ties. There was no sort of h- illustrious history of Saunders, you know, and various regiments. I didn't nothing. I'd been in the Scouts. That was it. So I, I loved the challenge of trying to get in. Um, the reality of Sandhurst, I mean. Part of me still—I'm still in touch with guys, you know, that I met there in the same platoon. Still, still got friendships. But, um, but I—I I kind of, in hindsight, I didn't like being told what to do. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> then, but I ended up doing 18 years. And interestingly, you know, that when you sort of apply as an officer, it's, it's all about using your initiative and kind of figuring things out. And actually, you sort of realise that a big part of it is being is being told what to do, even as an officer, just passing on orders in various ways and and don't think for yourself too much. And um, and I and I I I my career would have would have carried on, I'm sure. I mean, a big part of me loved it enormously. Um, but um, it was uh, quite appropriately it was it was ended by a moment of lift-off oversteer. Um, so this would have been December '98. <laughs> what were you driving? Uh, it was oh, oh, I missed miss this car so much. Uh, it was a 106 rally, so uh, Peugeot. So it was, and it was a Mark II, so the 1.6. Uh, a white, white one, white steel wheels. I oh, Love that thing. And of course, I was twenty, twenty-one. Thought I was God's gift, driving like a like a tit, you know. And I, I took my brother out. This was must have been just after Christmas, I think. Um, sort of, yeah, you know, late December. And we, my mum was living in Kent, so we, we, I'd gone and go to go stay with her for Christmas. And I just said, let's let's go for a drive, just one one evening. And um, and i i don't know if it was my my ego likes to think there might have been some black ice on the road because it was pretty chilly but but actually i think i was just being a tit and and driving w- way too fast around some country lanes and um, and i yeah lift off those span it flipped it it was, it was a proper proper world rally style crash one of the wheels came off every you know, end up on its roof in a, in a ditch spanned sideways through some big big concrete bollards and railings and things and um, totally wrote the car off and, and and sort of roped myself off in the process, so I, I I injured my leg quite badly, and um I I I think my first reaction was to was to call my mum, and I somehow found I remember finding my mobile phone like in the grass, like miles away from the car, <laughs> and uh, and there's always, there's lots of steam, you know, comes out obviously you've twatted the radiator, so I, so yeah, yeah. and every every every. Every sort of movie you see, the car instantaneously blows up. So my first my first reaction was to try and get out of the car, and it was sort of mangled and smashed up, and got out, got my brother out. Nothing happened, and then I and then I noticed the, the wipers were on. There was no windscreen left, but the wipers was like, and my the, my first reaction was like, oh, better go and turn those off, save save the battery. You know, it's like what the cold car is. Doing? So obviously, sort of in shock, and then I think I called my mum. I was like, oh, mum, I've, 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 you know, crashed the car. And she was like, oh, you Wally. And we're looking at my brother and there's like blood everywhere, <laughs> glass. And- <laughs> Bloody hell. And um, by the time she got there, we were only 15 minutes from, from her house. By the time she got there, we had like two ambulances, fire engine, you know, recovery truck, you know, winching the car out. Um, I got taken to A&E. They, they thought I'd broken my leg initially, but I hadn't. It turns out I'd, I'd ruptured part of my quad, so so um, really buggered my leg. So I went back to Sandhurst a few days later and um, obviously was taken out of training couldn't walk stuck on crutches had some had some really good physio at the taxpayers expense but um obviously was taken out of my platoon and they have a sort of they have a giant sort of biffs platoon of people with various injuries and and, and um it's called e- either the y list as you know letter y or, or Lucknow platoon and um yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. it's just the most demoralizing place because you lose you know, all your mates carrying on. Suddenly, are sat there with everyone sort of feeling sort of themselves on on crutches or arms in slings or, or whatever it is. Um And I think, I think part of the reason Sandhurst works so well is that the the pressure is is relentless. Like yeah. You have no time. You don't get enough sleep. You don't get it. It's just it's just full on mm. manic. And as soon as that pressure is removed, you know, I remember sort of sat there like twiddling my thumbs in my room, thinking, "Oh, what am I, what am I doing?" Here? Yeah. Oh. You know, it's just. So that's that's when I decided to to yeah to leave the army. So my yeah my my, my military career lasted all eleven months. So oh crack So so you weren't lustrous. too
0: far from from <laughs> commission. It was very close,
1: very close. Yeah, it was it was, it was a weird weird twist of fate. And often um, wonder I've got I've got know, yeah, close mates, friend of mine who's who's on the way to going full. He's a year younger. Than me. We used to go climbing as teenage buddies, and um, I still can't. Makes me feel feel very old. So he's he's he's. On the route to becoming full colonel in the in the Gurkhas, and just had this extraordinary career—five, f- f- six tours Afghanistan—just un- unreal. So part of me, part of me, still kind of wonders how that career might have panned out. But um, equally, part of me is is secretly little little bit glad I got out when I did. <laughs>
0: so, so when you were sat on your bed in mm. Sanders with basically a spannered body, mm. did you? Did you have an idea in your head what you were gonna do when you got out, or is it just a case of this just isn't for me?
1: Va- vaguely, um, I sort of, I, I'd always wanted at some point, you know, later in my life, to, to get into these big expeditions somehow, maybe, maybe do what, one trip to either pole. Um, so I think. I remember my sort of mum coming to pick me up from Sandhurst. You know, I was still on crutches and and just f- probably thinking I'd lost the plot completely. I couldn't couldn't walk, and you know, here I was talking about wanting to ski to the North Pole or the South Pole. I think she must have, my poor mum. And I yeah I had no money, no, no savings, no no qualification, nothing. Like back to zero, back to my mum's spare room, you know. And I, I actually got a part time job again in a in a this was still down in Kent, um, a shop called Field and Trek. Which used to be quite cool. It's now turned into the kind of sports director of the sort of outdoorsy world. But it used to be cool back then. And um, I, I ended up sort of working, I was 21, left the army, working part-time in, this, in, this, in the same shop where I worked part-time as like a 16-year-old. So part of me was like, oh, I've really like back to square one. It's quite, quite a depressing episode in some ways.
0: So at this point, you think I'm going to be a type of explorer. And this is the life for me. How do you start to plan for that kind of life and and how do you sell it to people?
1: Yeah, it's a Well, that's the hard part really. I, I I um so I got in touch with a guy called Penn Haddow, who um at the time he had a he, he had a company that was probably about fifteen years before its time. Uh, because I I think he really struggled with it 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 was it was called the polar travel company he he was offering these sort of guided trips mostly in the arctic and he had a website this is this is sort of back when I guess this must have been like 99 2000 so so websites were really you had to like dial up and you know and you'd get like four emails a week it's really exciting to get an email so I found he had had a website and I, I like the cheapest thing he was offering was was a sort of guided trip to the magnetic north pole which was couple of weeks and it was still a ton of money several thousand and, um, and I didn't have any money so I thought well I'll, I'll figure that one out so I got in touch with Penn and uh, he said well I'll tell you what we've got a team going to the, the geographic pole, the proper North Pole top of the world from Russia next year um, team of oh, what well, it was team of six um, if if you can raise X amount of money you could join the team and what a cool trip that'd be and I was just like oh brilliant like count me in so I um, and to cut a very long story short, the, the, for some reason the team pulled out. I don't know what happened. The, the sponsor went bust or something. And and um, and basically, Penn said to me, "Look, how about you and I do it together? And how about we don't have the planned airdrops of food and things on route? We just we just drag everything from the start, and we'll be the first British team to do that. You'll be the youngest. You're 23. Like it'll be amazing." I was like, "Yeah, bro, fantastic." He's like, "You've just got to raise 50 grand." Um, I was just like, "Shit! Like where the hell do I start with that?" So um I think my first ever proper sponsor was my mum's boss at the time. And I think he probably just took pity on me. And I think I think the company she was waving I think they gave me five grand or something and I was like, oh okay, on the on the road now. And um I didn't raise the whole fifty, like we, we basically started on this absolute shoestring budget. And we didn't get to the North Pole, we were on the ice for eight weeks, fifty nine days. A hellishly tough experience. Um properly steep learning curve. And I came back home, back to square one, back to mum's spare room. No money, no job, no girlfriend, nothing. You know, thinking, oh shit, that was a, that was a mistake. And my stepdad was like, "Well, you idiot! Like, could have told you. I don't know what you're thinking. That was just that was the most foolish thing I've ever seen." And um, and then I got a bill from uh, what's it? Invoice. It came sort of via Penn's lawyers. Um, for the deal was we we sort of split the cost of that trip fifty fifty. And we we'd racked up a bit more time than we expected to in in things like helicopters in Siberia, which are quite pricey. It turns out so sat on my sofa watching trisha or whatever it was and 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 opened this letter and it was a, an invoice for thirty four thousand six hundred and fifteen pounds and so i remember thinking shit like i haven't got any money my mum hasn't got any money she's just divorced my stepdad and living in this tiny house and yeah um how am i going to figure this out and and it basically became a almost sort of ponzi scheme i was like the, the only way i could think of paying off the debt from the first trip was was doing another expedition and um, and that's that's basically how my career started like just digging myself into such a massive hole that I couldn't see any other way out it was it was pretty desperate and I think pe- people often mistakenly assume that I'm somehow you know following my calling and living my dream and it was the like the roots of this career were in absolute fucking desperation like like really being in a lot of trouble um, and having to figure out a way a way to dig myself out of it because no one else was going to fix it it was my my fault i 'd got into that position so it was a uh, and i mean, 'm looking back in slightly rose tinted glasses, but it was uh, it was a properly tough few years um, and I get a lot of messages now it's it 's so easy on you know, instagram someone can send you a message and Uh, you know young people sort of wanting to 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 do they're like oh i I want to be an explorer too like what a what an awesome looking thing to do you get you get free cars from land rover you get watches and Canada goose swag and you fly around the world have this fantastic life and i i sort of try to it's a really tough balance because i i I want to say well if i can do it anyone can but i also want to say like don't get sucked into this idea of, of of the sort of the you know, social media, especially, is is this sort of curated, you know, external thing of, of 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 you know the kind of best possible version of anyone's life, and the reality is often a bit more gritty. And um, for me, you know, it took years and years of being absolutely broke, desperately trying to figure out a way to make this happen, um, to finally get to a point where it was a viable thing to be doing and to finally make some money. But it, it took a long, long, long time. So there's a there's a there's a you know, for me, certainly, there was a long tough apprenticeship and a, and a steep learning curve and, and, and a, you know, years and years of, of, of shitty work trying to make this happen.
0: But I imagine you didn't go into this uh, purely because you just thought I want to become a Land Rover and Canada Goose ambassador and get loads of free stuff. <laughs> it's actually because I like the idea of going to cold desolate places and finding out more about the environment and actually just achieving my own dreams. And not about the materialistic not side of it, no. mm. and more about the reason your reason to exist. Exactly. Yeah. And just um, just taking on the point that you just made about being broke, uh, I remember reading Sir Ronald when he did the Trans Globe expedition a few decades ago. He it was about 7 years oh, he, yeah, in yeah, yeah. the planning and, and, there, there and he was of, completely broke
1: yeah, yeah yeah there's a there's a photo of some of his team after that trip where they were in some sort of open air market somewhere like selling bits of kit just to pay off the, the debt they'd racked up you know so um so there, there there are a lot of similar stories and 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 you know yes i've proved it's possible to make a living out of this thing but 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 it's in a way um the odds are really stacked against you. It's like it's like wanting to be a professional pop star or a football player or whatever it is. Like like pe- people have done it, people are c- will continue to do it, but it's it's really really hard to get to a point where it's. But you know,
0: in but in order to do that, you have to survive first. Exactly. Yeah. People yeah. are interested in Ben Saunders talking because mm. Ben Saunders has survived the most ridiculous <laughs> and hostile environment on the planet. It's not. Ben Saunders went on a whale watching cruise and he's gonna write a book about it because quite frankly, I don't care about that. I'd like to go and watch whales. And if you know, stick it on a credit card and go and do it. However, James Griffin doesn't want to go to either of the polls because he don't like the cold. <laughs> but like every other, you know, ninety five ninety nine point nine nine percent of the rest of the planet, and then some who will never go to the poll. Mm. We can't even begin to fathom how hard that environment is and you talk about pulling a 200 kilo pulk behind you and I I'm not in the greatest shape of my life I'm trying to get fit as I keep going on about but 18 months ago I left the army and I was like I'm not doing any more (laughs) (laughs) fits. you can't tell me what to do anymore and then suddenly it's like oh god I'm putting another (laughs) loop in my belt it's quite embarrassing lazy git (laughs) and so so yeah whatever I need to get fit again. And I go off on these tangents.
1: <laughs> That's normally, normally
0: my party trick. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds. Anyway,
1: so you have to,
0: in order to make a living out of mm. that, first, you've got to put in the hard work mm. and you've got to put the foundations in and go, if I'm going to write an interesting book about going to the North or South Pole, guess what? I've got to do it first.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And no one's going to give you the money up front I'll give you a book deal. Just make sure that you do yep. do it. How's you know, about? Do it, live, survive, yeah. write a book. And if it's any good,
1: then then yeah, yeah. I'll give you the money. Well, so there's a lovely, I think it was Henry, Henry Ford said, no one, no one built a reputation on what they're planning to do.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. I'm planning to become a rock star. Probably in a parallel universe. <laughs> but no one's queuing up to give me a bloody record deal anytime soon. So you do your first big exped, and when was that again?
1: Uh, two thousand one was the first big one. So I was twenty twenty three,
0: and that was the one that you didn't quite make it to the North Pole, isn't
1: it? Was complete, complete got like two thirds two thirds the way there. So so it, 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 on many levels, massive failure. But uh, also, but but also, I, I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't gone through that experience. So um, so so when you got back from that, did you did
0: you feel? Did you feel disappointed? Did you feel like you didn't want to do it again? Or did it light a massive fire in your belly? Because I know if it was me, I think I'd be more like, Yeah, I've I've been yeah. there, done that and survived. So um I think I'll
1: do something <laughs> else now. It took a while. Like the the immediate the immediate aftermath was was I don't know how long, but it, it probably a couple of weeks of just Really like gazing into the abyss of self pity, thinking, "Well, that was a that was really stupid. Like, how am I going to figure this mess out?" And just and, and also sort of compounded by the fact that physically I was buggered as well. I was just really really knackered. I'd lost weight, skinny, and you know just burnt out. So it took it took a while to sort of get back on on a kind of even keel again. And it took I don't know what it was weeks months to sort of it, I guess to kind of turn it around in my head and think actually I got close to to that. Bizarre goal than anyone my age at any point in history. Like I've I've got a ton of really hard won experience under my belt now. Like what what am I going to do with that? And there was definitely, um, like the sensible thing to do would, would would have been to turn my back on it and and get you know some pursue some sensible career in accountancy or whatever. And I'm sure that's what most people around me were pushing me to do maybe not accountancy, I'm shit at numbers but but you know but something something sensible and my, and my again my stepdad was 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 like oh you know you really get, like the sooner you get this out of your system and get you know get a mortgage and a sensible career and you know the, the better um and there's there's definitely been looking back a bit of a sort of like fuck you factor like if if I'm told I can't do something or I'm not good enough or if I, you know if, if, if something is impossible for me to do I'm like well okay what watch this and that's that served me well in some parts. I, I did mistakenly apply that to to a relationship a few years ago with a girl I was sort of on and off with for about three years, and 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 it was just disastrous. And all my all my mates were well, like, mate, like it's, it's really you're just not we're just fighting. It was it was horrific, and I was, I was determined to prove everyone wrong, and as, 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 which has kind of worked for me professionally, but relationships, not, yeah, not so much.
0: <laughs> Bloody hell! So what was the next
1: big one after that? Uh, gosh, so yeah, t- 2003 well, we, was a kind of little mi- mini mini trip, um, it was to the North Pole but it was the last little bit, so the last 60 Nautical miles, so I, I basically, again r- raised some money, took a couple of years, um, flew out, you fly sort of via the, the, uh, Svalbard so off the north coast of Norway and then up onto the Arctic Ocean and, and the Russians certainly up until two years ago had a te- very temporary sort of floating airstrip on the on the pack ice. so you basically pay for a flight up there, got dropped off and what most tourists do is either fly from this airstrip in a helicopter to the north pole have a glass of champagne fly home again do or, do people do that oh yeah yeah lazy <laughs> bastards or or yeah or they sort of walk the, the 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 last you know four five six seven days whatever it is and then get picked up from the pole and fly back and and, and say they've skied to the north pole and I, I, for me, this was a, this was a chance to try. I, I, I wanted to do at some point a solo expedition, so I thought, well, this is a chance for me to sort of see if I can hack it on, on my own up there. And it was, in some ways, a sort of relatively safe expedition because they had this Russian airstrip and helicopter. So if I fucked up, they could come and, come and helicopter me out. Um, but to save money, rather than sort of walking to the pole and then getting flown out again, I basically walked to the pole, turned around, and walked back to this. Russian base again, so so it was a it was a couple of weeks on the ice on my own, and I would have been I don't know twenty five, twenty four, twenty five, twenty five. Um, so um so that was a it was a, it was a you know short trip by by you know compared to the rest of the things I've done, but it was it was um it was a brilliant trip because I sort of realised that I could survive and operate in this in this really weird environment you know moving pack ice walking over the sea looking out for polar bears i could do it on my own i could look after myself i could survive i could navigate and i, and I came home in, in really good shape you know sort of fit fit healthy totally fine so that that was a real springboard to then everything else i did after that so that was yeah 2003 2004 went back um my plan and this now you know i was 26 so so looking back i'm like what the hell was i thinking but uh, yeah, 2004, the plan was to basically walk from from Russia to the North Pole and then carry on to the north coast of Canada, which no one had done on their own w- without being supported, without having sort of airdrops en on, on route. Um, the only person who had done it on their own with support was a Norwegian guy called Borger Ausland, who's, who is like the Roger Federer of, of the polar world. So I don't know what the hell got into my head thinking that I, I, could, I could pull this off, age 26, with two weeks on sea ice experience on my own ever um uh but that's somehow i raised the money to do that and it was a big big six-figure budget uh dropped off by helicopter north coast of siberia february 2004 um and it was an epic trip i mean again i i didn't i didn't succeed in some ways i didn't make it all across to canada no, no one ever has um, and the ice is getting thinner every year so it's, it's it's sort of getting harder every year but got to the North Pole on my on my Todd, which it turns out I'm third person ever to do that. So I was 26, youngest by a lot, yeah, more than a decade. So it was a sort of a mixed mixed um, uh, bag, really, because I, I yeah you know, I didn't achieve ultimately what I wanted to achieve, but um, but it was an awesome awesome trip, and yeah, 10 weeks, 72 days on my own. Um, I imagine there's a conflicting
0: uh, emotion of pride and disappointment. Mm. Um because everybody else thinks you're slightly crazy and <laughs> an incredibly fit. But but when it dawns on you that do you know what? I'm not going to achieve what I set out to do, hmm. how how do you take that personally? Is it all consuming or are you
1: able to just I think brush it off? Early on I did, and um and I've I've I guess I've always been quite tough on myself i've always sort of set really high i've always aimed as high as i could in 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 the this weird very narrow niche field that i've, that I've you know specialized in um so uh, early on I, I was definitely really hard on myself and um I'm often came, came away from these big trips feeling disappointed even when externally it seemed like a mega mega success like so it's a really big big deal um, and i think over the years I, I i've sort of changed my my relationship with with the word failure and 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 of my I've done 12 big expeditions now very few um, have been entirely successful like most of them have been have been sort of compromised in, so, in some respect and that's and that's invariably because I've, I've always been aiming as high as I can and when you're trying to do something genuinely pioneering genuinely new like the odds are really really stacked against you that, that you're going to pull it off especially when you're you're operating in this environment where so many factors that are crucial to your to your success and your survival are totally outside your control you're you're really at the mercy of of pretty powerful natural forces in these in these environments.
0: what do you think is the or what do you consider to be the biggest factor that will um affect the success or failure mm. and I don't want to use the word failure as as we know it mm. um but the the factor that's most likely to to really decide whether what you set out to do will will occur as you wanted it to so mechanical human uh, or, or nature
1: what's the biggest I, one i i, I would I, I would say human for sure and and people often ask about the clothing and the gear and the, and, the, and the you know the, the, the food and the nutrition and the training and the sort of physical side of it but the the thing, like the 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 part of myself that these big trips have 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 tested more than anything else, is is my own my own self belief. And and there have been so many um, moments over over the years, either on expeditions or, or trying to organise expeditions, trying to raise these huge amounts of money, organise these really complex everything from logistics to insurance to to, to maps and charts and navigation to all, all this all this stuff. Um, and there have been so many moments where it, it sort of felt like. Almost everyone around me is, is is starting to doubt whether this is possible, um, and my, my 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 sort of half baked theory is is that is that this quality of like self I, I don't mean I don't mean arrogance or, or conceit or sort of self importance, but 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 belief in, in your own capacity to to, to make stuff happen, um, to change things, um, your, your sort of sense of agency. My my half baked theory is is that is that 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 capacity is is a bit like physical strength or endurance or you know fitness it's the more you stress it and test it and challenge it the, the stronger it becomes um, and ultimately looking back that that's what each of these big expeditions did um, was was really 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 challenge my belief in myself and, and my abilities and and, um, and that seemed to grow with, with each expedition r- regardless of whether it was a success or a failure um, so, so yeah, to me, like self-belief is is the biggest ingredient in success. I think in in any endeavor in any field, and 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 it's a and it, it, it seems to me in hindsight that it's it's a sort of malleable human quality. Like the more you, the more you challenge it, the stronger it gets ultimately. And, and the reverse is true. Like if you only do what's comfortable, if you only do what you've always done, if you only do what you know how to do and what you're confident doing, like it, it's it's never given the the impetus to sort of to you know to to get stronger.
0: there's two parts to this next question which was harder
1: the north pole or the south pole it's 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 in some ways they're they're very similar environments they're sort of big blank very cold deep frozen wilderness you know nothingness in other ways they're massively different like north pole is is essentially flat It's, it's at sea level it's in the middle of the sea um it's a part of me really loved those expeditions sort of early part of my career on, on the Arctic Ocean because it is such a weird environment it's it's there are no maps because you're walking over the sea so so you're seeing if you're alone up there as I was for 10 weeks you're seeing scenery that no one's ever seen before at least the incredible ice escapes, and that no one will ever see again so there's a, there's a real magic to it um, it can be particularly grim as well it's it's because you're walking over an ocean it's it's very humid um, and, and cold deep cold plus humidity means ice and frost everywhere so so you wake up in the 10th morning covered in ice inside you get sh- you turn the stove on everything melts you get rained on all your kit gets wet you get ice in the steep mag ice in your clothes ice everywhere it's just miserable um antarctica meanwhile is 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 incredibly dry it's, it's a desert so uh, and there are no polar bears which is which is nice um but you do have crevasses so you, you don't want to fall down a hole so there are kind of pros and cons to both but antarctica in many ways the challenge with the big trips I've done down there has, has been, in some ways, more mental. Like just, 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 just dealing with the the, the scale of these journeys. You know, twenty, thirteen, fourteen, walking eighteen hundred miles, um, and struggling in the first week or so to do to do three, four, five miles a day. Like it just seems, just mentally, just just the the the, the goal, rather than being motivating, was just totally overwhelming. It just felt completely impossible early on. Um, so what happens when you're on these
0: expeditions and and I imagine that, that, that you may have felt this you wake up and you just think, I can't be asked. It's just not today. Just cannot be asked. I'm I'm getting on that beacon and that helicopter is picking me up today. I imagine if you're with Tarka or anybody else, you know, they can mm. give you a good shake and say, Don't be ridiculous. But on your own and 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 you just think i can't be asked how do you deal with that
1: yeah that's 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 one of the one of the hardest things about being solo there's 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 no audience there's no one there watching how you're doing you know you, you can not that I've ever been tempted to sort of well i've definitely been tempted, but not that I have like sacked it in and just said, you know what, I'm going to stay in the sleep bag um i trying to think how I've sort of dealt with it in a strange way like life life on these expeditions is 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 very um it it has to be quite routine like you're kind of living in this tiny space wearing the same clothes eating pretty much the same food every day doing the same thing every day so you just get into almost into this into this kind of robotic routine alarm goes off okay it's really fucking cold I've got to light the stove I've got to melt snow I'm hungry I've got to make breakfast so there's one of the strange things about solo expeditions is that there in my experience there isn't much chance for um what you might imagine to be a chance to 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 sort of meditate and reflect and think really deeply, you know, weeks on your own in this sort of white nothingness, um, actually, you, you you're really stressed out the whole time. You're you're always busy during the day. It, like it's it's it, everything is up to you. You've got to navigate. You've got to look at polar bears. You've got to make sure you're eating and drinking regularly. You've got to find the right route through the ice, whatever it is. Um, in the evening you've got to put the tent up, you've got to you got to dig up some snow to melt, get some hot water, make some food, update the website to fix everything you've broken that day. So you're sort of you you're, you're on it the whole time. And actually when there are two of you or, or more, as, as soon as you're part of a team, suddenly those those roles get, get divided up. A- and if you're sharing the navigation, you can spend half the time following someone else and then you can daydream. But on on your own you can't do that. So um so um as a result, like the, the, the for me certainly the time goes really quickly on on solo trips because you are just busy like it's it's just really full on but but conversely it, it's more exhausting because all the pressure is on you um and yeah i think ultimately it, it sort of often it sort of boils down to like how badly do you want it and and i've always had you know thinking about that that solo trip 2004 Yeah, almost this sort of like two little cartoon voices sort of angel and devil and 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 part of me because you're traveling over pack ice and it's all smashed up, it's not skiing. You know, it's like scrambling over these big ridges and trying to haul the sledge up on a rope after you. And, and quite often, I'd, I'd stack it and fall over, and the sledge would come crashing down a ridge and run me over. And yeah, you know, and I'd get up, and, and on, on several occasions, I remember still standing up again and untangling the rope and putting my skis back on. And yeah, you know, and and part of me feeling secretly disappointed that I hadn't injured myself. Badly enough to call for a for a a pick yeah, rescue flight with my with with my pride intact. Part of me was looking for an excuse, looking for a, a reason to 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 quit because it was so tough. You know, like a nice fractured wrist or a broken ankle would have been, would have been great. So part of me was looking for reasons to stop. And, and and then of course the other part of me is like, well, you know, this is what you wanted to be doing. Like this is the culmination of a lot of work. And you know, like you can't really stop without a good reason. Um, Antarctica with Tarka we we were we were genuinely a really good team like we definitely pulled each other through some really rough shitty times and um we it's to me you you sort of mentally emotionally on on these big expeditions you you go through enormous highs and lows and I think that's what makes them in, in a weird way so compelling like it's such a vivid sort of experience to live through and and there's I can't think of any moments that were like all right okay not too bad it's either this is brilliant or it's really desperately tough like i want to break this is so decidedly going, you know. average <laughs> just i don't yeah it's never really happened and, and actually with tarka and, and with every trip i've done as part of the team that those 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 sort of peaks and troughs never seem to coincide like when you're really struggling the other person's there to get you through and, and vice versa so yeah we were a good team
0: it's funny i went to see uh Sir Find in 2014 when he, he he was doing a, a bit of a talking tour. Um, and, and he mentioned something that stuck with me. Uh, and it's, it's, it's slightly, it's a bit of a method that I kind of used from, from when I joined the army, really. And he said, he said, mm. I always think about my father and my grandfather looking down on me and judging me um and i never wanted to disappo i never wanted to disappoint them as mm. as they watched watched over me and it's a very old school mentality um, but he would say you know when that wimpish part of your brain starts talking to you it gets a backhander and you get up and you get going and it's funny when i was in basic training which is nothing like uh polar there's expedition less
1: less, less less ironing involved in in, in polar expeditions and yeah
0: <laughs> well well frankly i think you should take an iron and ironing board next time um, but yeah, I remember in basic training, um, I would call my dad on my Nokia thirty three ten, and I'd be crying down the phone. You know, dad, I don't think I can do this. It's too hard. I want to come home, and uh, and my dad would be very much like, "Well, we'll just knock it on the head then." I was like, "No," <laughs> and he says like, "You know, honestly, it's not for you. Just chuck it in. Mm. Bit of reverse psychology." And I was like, "No, I'll show you." And he knew mm. exactly what he was doing because he knew his son. But it was very much that you can't tell me what mm. to do. Even even if the arm isn't for me, I am going to prove I can pass basic training. I haven't thought pass basic training. Um, and then, oh, Christ, you can't leave. <laughs> and this is a terrible idea. And 18 years later, but it was all right. But, yeah, I find that mentality interesting. It's almost like that once mm. you get into a routine, that's what drives you. It's continues that momentum yeah. whereas and th- and then there's, there's people like myself and i'm I'm certainly not comparing myself to serrano finds where it's the emotional side of your brain that says if you don't do this mm. not only are there will be people who are disappointed because people invested time and money in, in you mm. but you won't be able to live with yourself and i find those two those two things those polar opposites there's binary and there's non-binary mm. Mm. and i find that really interesting i'd like to move the timeline on a little bit and if you can summarize well, <laughs> it's probably not fair to twice to summarize but um you went away to antarctica with Tarka yep. in 2013 didn't you
1: yeah that was that was i mean that that i think will be the biggest trip i, I will ever do um i think i in, in some ways kind of scratched the itch with with that project but um we called it the, the Scott Expedition, named after Captain Scott, obviously, and, and the plan, very simply, was to was to walk from the coast of Antarctica, Ross Island on, on the sort of New Zealand side of the continent, to the South Pole, turn around and walk back again. Um no one had ever done that. And and that that was the journey that that, that A had defeated Shackleton on, on his Nimrod expedition when he turned around short of the pole, yeah, you know, running low on food, and B ultimately claimed the lives of, of Captain Scott and his teammates, um, nineteen twelve. So to, to to me for years it seemed extraordinary that that journey hadn't been finished. Um obviously Amundsen did it, the Norwegian team beat Scott to the pole, but they had dogs and dog sleds and they were cracking the whip and riding the back of the sled and started with 53 dogs and finished with 11. So that's how they did it. But no one had ever had ever walked there and back. And actually when you looked at it, you know Scott and his and his men, yeah, you know, we, we, we know roughly where they died in the, in their camp. So they they'd covered near as damn it 1,600 miles on foot in, in, in the toughest place on earth. And that's a record that stood until until we finished our, our trip in 2014. So to me, for years, it seemed um, incredible that the, the sort of high high watermark of human sheer athletic endeavour was that that bar was set so high in in, in 1912 that no one had raised it. Um, when Rand and, and and Mike Stroud crossed Antarctica, that was 1,300 miles, so 300 miles shorter than the journey that S- Scott and his and his teammates made so to me it was it for years it was it was sort of baffling it was it was as if the the, the you know the iron man record or the marathon record had been set in 1912 by guys smoking pipes and wearing tweed jackets and woolly jumpers and hobnail boots and, and and no one had despite a century's worth of technology and innovation and advance and everything else like no one had raised that bar every every contemporary south pole expedition was somehow shorter or easier than the journey that Scott had, had, had died making so um and, and one of the challenges was that there was this sort of misconception that it it had all been done. I remember like twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, trying to get this thing off the ground, trying to find the money, and and people saying, oh, didn't didn't Ben Fogle do that last year, or didn't has isn't Prince Harry going to do that, or you know, or like oh my my granny's going on a cruise to Antarctica next year. Do you think do you think you might see her when you're down there? So there was this kind of even though Captain Scott and Shackledon are still household names in the UK, very few people realised that that that. The, the journey that, that uh, defeating the both was, was still unfinished. So to me, it was it was just this really I- iconic thing to, to aim for, and a really interesting puzzle to figure out. Like, how come no one's done this before? And the answer is, it's just a really fucking long way, and it's really difficult, and and the logistics are complex. Like, you need a really big window to do it. So you're kind of outside the window that's normally, you know, people normally fly in and out. So you've got to charter your own aircraft, and that's not cheap. So it was a massive project. We ended up raising and spending one point seven million pounds from from zero, pretty much back to zero because I was basically broke when we when we got home again. So so it was it was just a bit of a mad project. And um, yeah, we ended up starting sort of super early in the in the Antarctic spring, so October twenty thirteen, with these massive sledges behind us, one hundred and eight days of food, um, and. Um, it was yeah, just epic, epic trip. Um, we we we. Strangely, like um, if you look it up, it it'll, it'll either say 105 or 108 days. I often say 108 because when we were dropped at the start, we actually had to walk for three days in the wrong direction to get to Scott's hut, the wooden hut that's still standing down there. So we did 108 days in total. But but technically, once we got to the hut, then then the trip started. So that's 105 days. E- either way, it was a long old camping trip. Um, and that's
0: a. That's a real good place to, uh, to mm. put a break in. Um, so if yeah. you go grab a brew, uh, have a quick break, and I will see you again shortly for part two. So, welcome back. Uh, so you start your slightly ridiculous camping trip. What was it? 1,600?
1: 1600, 1,600 miles? Uh, 1,800.
0: What, 1,801? <laughs> so, Serrano finds he gets to 1,300 miles and has set a new record. You get to 1,301 miles and you've beaten that record. How hard are the remaining 500 miles? Because effectively you've now set the new record. You could just pack up and go home, call in a plane. You're done. It's
1: a, it's a tough question. I mean, in in, in in some ways, like there 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 weren't any easy miles on, the, on that trip. It was the whole thing was sort of was sort of was sort of sufferfest. I think that I think this actually for us the real threshold was was getting past roughly where Scott would have died. Um, there's no there's no sign they were ever there there's been centuries worth of snowfall that they, they died on the Ross Ice Shelf which is essentially glacial ice that's moving out to sea so that their bodies are you know, would be miles away now um, but we knew roughly where they, they died so sort of getting beyond that point was was interesting because then we were sort of in, in uncharted territory like no one had ever walked that far before in these in these conditions so that was an interesting one but I, I think by that point we were, you know, the, f- the sort of finish line was in, was I mean, not physically in sight, but kind of metaphorically. And, and you, t- you, t- you said something earlier about progress and 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 the idea that you sort of when when you've got so far in, in pursuit of some goal, suddenly you've got a sort of, uh, you know, X amount of stuff in the bank, whether it's hours or whatever it is that you've put into it. Um, and by that point, we had this sort of running total. Yeah, we, we we obviously had GPS, and we sort of had trackers monitoring our distance and everything else. And I had a, a little notebook, and so sort of in in the front of the notebook, I would scribble down our our position, latitude, longitude each day, and and the mileage we'd covered, and then in and then I'd write next to it our total mileage, and sort of put a circle around it. And sort of the first couple of weeks, that was really depressing because it was sort of 11 miles or whatever, and then suddenly, when you've got a thousand miles in the bank and 1,500 miles in the bank and 1,600 miles, in the bank, you're like, shit, we're we're nearly there. Um, so in in a weird way, it was, it wasn't it was very difficult finishing it but it, it definitely we didn't uh if anything our motivation was sort of ramping up as as we got closer to the to the end Um uh, we were also totally knackered like really really buggered by that point and uh, and struggling as well because once you get back down the, the Beermore glacier on the ross ice shelf the the ross ice shelf is the same size as france so you're like walking diagonally across france to, to finish this journey Ex- except there's no scenery at all you're just on the blank ice shelf so so sort of mentally it's, it's quite monotonous, especially if the weather's bad which it which it was a lot of the time um.
0: physically, how far apart were you and taka because i 'm guessing that you were roped up together
1: uh no uh, actually n- did we ever rope up we We should have roped up for for certain sections of the journey but but we we basically just for some reason i don 't know if we ever actually sort of voted against it, but we just realized it was. It sort of gets to a point where a you're, you're so knackered that that especially when it's cold, like stopping to fart around with putting on harnesses and tying into ropes and clipping it, yeah, just you get even colder, and it then becomes more more dangerous. Well, how cold?
0: What's kind of the uh, average?
1: We I've never worked out the average for the whole trip. It, it varied enormously. I mean, the warmest days were just below just below freezing. The coldest days, I think, the coldest ambient air temperature we saw was minus forty eight um so so theoretically wind chill into the minus 50s minus 60s um on a, on a bad day um interestingly it's a bit like here if if you get a sort of hard frost normally it's clear skies and quite still and the sort of the the, the dirty secret of my world is actually minus 40 on a, on a on a sunny day with no wind is is a joy but minus 15 when it's really windy is a nightmare so um so the 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 wind is the big thing in antarctica and and especially if it's into your face that's just the worst thing possible just a headwind everything's covered you've got goggles and mask and everything's covered up and even just basic stuff you're wearing big mittens so just even just going for a pee is 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 hassle um and you know navigating and all that kind of stuff so um so the 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 wind is a big factor um but yeah it was it was pretty chilly most of the time
0: (laughs) did you ever reach such a low point that you felt that you had to reach out or that you actually had to reach out to Tarka and go, mate, I'm really struggling and, you know, I need some reassurance. What are we doing?
1: Well, I I think one of the, I don't normally share this story, but one of the the genuinely, one of the nicest things anyone has ever done for me and one of the sort of acts of kindness that, that has most humbled me was um, we basically, on the way to the pole, so heading south, we'd cross the Ross Ice Shelf. Just about to get up, I think it was before we hit the Bimol Glacier, and and we'd sort of pass this threshold where we, we 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 on the way out we we would bury um, depots. We'd leave these caches of, of food and, and fuel for the for the stove for our return journey. So the sledge obviously gets a little bit lighter every day because you're eating food, you're burning fuel in the, in the cooker. Um, but then every every x number of weeks on the way out, we'd suddenly leave this depot, and you and you'd lose a few kilos at the sledge. So our, our speed started to increase. And super early on with with mega heavy sledges, like I was marginally stronger than Tarka. we were quite we, we we were roughly the same age as a year younger than me we both trained really hard we were both super fit when we got there, and we both knew what we were doing and what we were letting ourselves in in for um but just just in terms of physique we 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 were sort of kind of mismatched in some ways he's i'm short and stocky he's tall and lanky he's he's a technically very good skier he's half french he lives in the alps i'm british so the term good skier could just never genuinely be, be applied um but but when it was like sheer slug fest like grit your teeth and heaving this ridiculous sledge like for some for some reason i i, I was marginally faster than he was and i get pissed off because i'd have, have to stop and get cold and wait for him to catch up yeah. But after a few weeks and after having left two or three depots, suddenly there was a sort of threshold where actually you could start to take longer strides and start to speed up. And 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 Tarka with his massive long legs suddenly started to outpace me, and that was really annoying. So I was I spent a few days in 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 a bit of a low point because I think we were going slower than we expected on that on that sort of first quarter of the journey heading out just just because of the loads involved and the, and, the, and the very low temperatures being there sort of early spring, and. Um, and this didn't come to light until several weeks later when Tarka owned up to it but i was I was on a real downer for a few days, and I was just all these calculations going on sort of average average distance covered every day you know speed per hour that we're doing, how much food we got left and it was just starting to seem more and more hopeless like we had to somehow really have this this exponential change in our average speed otherwise we we might as well give up. And um one night Targa snuck out to the to the sledges to go and he said he was going to go and get something and, and what he then owned up to me weeks later was that he t- he basically took three or four food bags. Our, our food was basically packaged into twenty four hours of, of rations for, for two people. So every other day a big bag would come out, out of your sledge. And and yeah, unbeknownst to me, Tarka took, you know, a few kilos of food out of my sledge. N- never said never said a word about it because he knew that me being proud and stubborn, I him to stop being an idiot, and we just we'd really carefully made sure that we were both pulling exactly the same weight at, at the start. Um, so yeah, Tarka took a bit of food up my sledge, and 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 without me knowing, of course, got that. I was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit stronger today. Oh, let's do a big day, for, you know. And ah, oh, just I mean, what what an amazing thing to do. So we we were we were genuinely a, a you know a brilliant team, um, and we you know we we both got each other through some some rough bits. Tarka then later in the trip I think physically maybe again because of his build he's just taller and lankier than me he's got more surface area he he loses more heat and um, we found that he was just going downhill again it's just fra- fractionally faster than I was and and he after we turned around the pole we had some really shit weather and and, and he got genuinely hypothermic one, one day and was just totally out of it and i had to look after him and you know take his gloves off or take his boots off make him a hot drink you know kind of get him into his sleeping bag so we we yeah we we helped each other out um but that was that one moment of kind of when he owned up to what he'd done was like i was totally sideswiped
0: were you happy or were you angry
1: Bit of both, <laughs> yeah. My 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 like stubborn stubborn ego part of me was like, "Oh, you bastard!" Like I, w- I wanted to like pull my own weight literally for the whole the whole trip. And part of me was just so so moved by it. like what what an amazing things do for your teammate. So um,
0: because you come across to me as someone who might feel slightly cheated, yeah. and do you know what, we're <laughs> gonna go back and we're gonna do that distance again.
1: Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and I'm gonna
0: have my weight back. Yeah. was that part of it or was it just like geez and nice one yeah thanks for that
1: yeah uh, no there was definitely part of that and I I, I think I've always prided myself on, on, on being I don't know like self-reliant being able to figure it out myself and yeah I, I think I, I was going to say in, in my defence I think he was aware of the fact that there was, there was probably a lot more pressure riding on me sort of mentally like it was my I, I was leading it it was my fault we were there I'd, I'd raised all the money I'd organised everything and it was difficult kind of f- for me training for it. it it was it was a bit like um I forget which Rocky film it is when, when Sylvester Stallone's like um you know out chopping wood and all that kind of oh kind yeah, of, yeah yeah and and, and uh and uh, who was the other one Ivan e- 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 Dr- Dr- yeah, Drago, Drago, Drago yeah who's yeah, yeah. the Drago yeah and he was like in the lab like with this heart rate monitor yeah and it was a bit like that like I was I had this amazing coach and I was always like doing all this and, and Tarko was living the ups and probably literally chopping wood and, you know, running up mountains and things. So we had this very different we were in different countries for most of the training and the build up. And he was very aware that I was shouldering, you know, almost all the stress when it came to the, the 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 fundraising and the managing this bizarre project. And all the people we had we had a big team working for us in London, big office. It sort of became this business where I was the I was the boss, but I was also the thing that we were shipping. know, I was the product as well. So um yeah.
0: And when you realised that you know, actually, we're gonna make this. We're gonna do it. Was there ever a sense of, do you know what? I don't. I don't think I want this to end.
1: <laughs> um Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, stepping ashore again at Ross Island, um, three and a half months after we started, was, in some ways, biggest anti-climax of my in- entire life. I'd always, I'd always imagined that. It was going to be the most emotional, emotional hour of my life, that, the last few yards of that journey. And, and, and that Talp and I would be sort of skiing along, high-fiving and in tears, hugging, you know, flying a flag. Yeah. And none of that really happened. It was just this weird, like, oh, like, okay, we don't have to walk any further, like relief, really. Um, but it took, it took a long time for it to kind of sink in, really, what, what, we'd, sort of, what we'd actually pulled off. Um, in some ways, it probably took years. Um, to, to, for me to finally sort of appreciate what we what we'd done, um, and Tarka was was in so many ways like perfect teammate because he's 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 uh, he's a very private individual. Like he's got no interest in 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 making a career out of this and doing public speaking and media stuff. And you know he's he hates that. He's he's very very private. He lives lives in the Alps, and you know and he's a he's a geek. He's a computer programmer. So that's how he makes his makes his living. And he spends half his time. Writing code on his computer and half his time in, in the mountains outdoors. And part of me is quite envious. Like, he's not on social media. He just doesn't do it. He's not on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or anything. Um,
0: How did you rope him into it?
1: So, <laughs> he, I, I'd known him for about a decade. He, he, he was a good mate by that point. He'd he got in touch with me years and years before that trip, asking for some advice on, on experts he, he was planning in, in the Canadian Arctic. And it, was, it was a part of the world that I, I knew. And he, there was something about his email out of the blue that kind of stood out. He'd obviously done his homework. He obviously knew what he was doing. I looked him up. He'd done a bit of some quite impressive mountaineering expeditions. So I, I was like, okay, he's not a complete no hopper. Like I, I, I still get occasional emails from people like, oh, I've just done my first park run and I want to go solo to the North Pole. Like, where do I start? Um, and you know, so. But Tarka, yeah, obviously I had a bit of a track record, and he obviously was quite clued up, and he in he sent some quite quite specific questions. He's like, could I? If I brought these maps and these aerial images and satellite images, like could we could we talk through the route? I'm thinking about and he knew that I was living in London, I was in Putney at the time. He's like, Could could I come and see you and just, just sit down half an hour and just look at these maps together? And I was like, Yeah, sure. I didn't realise he, he was in Bath at the time. He cycled from Bath to London to 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 meet me and then cycled home the next day, I think. And um, and he also was totally broke. He basically built this shitty old mountain bike himself and he's wearing his sort of bath rugby team you know shorts to do this bike ride. So I remember like we we got on well, but part of me also was like, okay, this guy, there's something, something, you know, not quite right there. Perfect. You know, <laughs> yeah. And if he was a bit
0: bigger than you, then if he goes man down, at least you've got a bit of gristle to exactly, chew on. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so you'd achieved this incredible feat of human endurance. And you get home and you find yourself either on or descending down this incredibly steep cliff edge the climax has happened mm. you're now on the other side and you're and and, and a, a common thing for people who have come back from conflict zones mm. war zones etc is they go to the supermarket and they feel completely detached and alien from what we would normally Mm. call normal life because you've just done something so out of the ordinary and extreme you feel completely alien did you ever experience that when you came back and if so how Mm. did you deal with it
1: yes good question in some ways i sort of came home and it's a long long old journey antarctica to chile chile back to madrid madrid back to the uk but and there was a huge big press reception at Heathrow for sponsors and TV cameras and all that kind of stuff which which strangely I think beforehand part of me was really excited about but um, but the reality was it was just it was really grim and really difficult and and trying to articulate something that I was still processing myself um, with a microphone and a, and a camera in my face and, and and also trying to tell trying to explain something that 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 you just couldn't hope to understand unless you'd experienced something like it yourself just was so frustrating and I, I sort of found myself um you know on this on this treadmill of like having to add all these commitments to sponsors to give talks and tell me what it was like and you know, I went to the gave a talk at the TED conference in Vancouver and you know, and again I, I sort of agreed to that naively thinking oh it will be great it'll be the first big first big Talk I gave you know, what what fantastic audience you know TED I'd, I'd spoken there 2005 which so was a nice like second chapter you know and I'd always imagined like before the expedition kind of rocking up at TED and and probably keeping my massive expedition beard for theatrical effect which I didn't didn't do and and giving like the ultimate motivational speech like here we had this goal it was the toughest thing you could aspire to in my field and everyone said it was impossible and we worked our asses off and we did it Woo, you know and actually. The story I told was, was like, well, we kind of did this thing, and I dedicated you know, years and years of my life and sacrificed all the stuff to to achieve it, and nothing really changed. Like it was a bit, like, oof, you know, and and I'm you know not trying to figure out what that all means, and yeah, you know, and it was funny how I remember getting off the stage at TED, thinking oh, I've completely bores that up. Like I, I really just missed missed the yeah, oh fuck, what well, we're done. And so many people there at this at this ridiculous event in in Vancouver kind of came up to me and, and were like, yeah. Same thing happened to me when I when I sold my business for five billion dollars, or or when I you know Sting was there. He was like, yeah, first platinum album. Same thing, nothing really changed. Like life goes on. And I'd I remembered he, maybe it was a radio interview years ago with Bradley Wiggins after he won the Tour de France, and he sort of came back home, and there was like a post-it note on the fridge, and he had to put his clothes in the washing machine, and he was like, oh, this isn't quite how I'd imagined this was. This was gonna be. So th- there was. It was a funny one, and I, I, I think I'd sort of made the mistake of thinking for, for so long, for so much of my life, that, that success was this sort of target in the future, this kind of finish line. And if, if I somehow achieved enough of something or accumulated enough of something else, one day I'd get to that point, I'd cross it, and everything would be awesome. Um, I would have made it. And, and, of course, it doesn't really work that way. And, and strangely, looking back, like the the satisfaction from that trip didn't come from crossing the finish line it came from the way that we did it and how well we sort of we 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 struggled and, and kind of worked our butts off like when no one was there um so i, I think it, it it taught me a lot about about like what does success mean um but it it took a long time for that to sink in and and, and there was definitely a really um difficult few months and it's sa- it sounds it sounds really like decadent to sort of describe it as as traumatic because we didn't go to war, we weren't being shot at, but it it was a, it was a tough trip, and um, and I and and I came home and suddenly realised that no one no one else really understood apart from Taco what we'd been through, um, and equally, I'd sort of brought it on myself. It was totally of my own choosing, my own volition. So I, no one was forcing me to go and do this trip. So it was completely self inflicted um and also there was i i'd achieved the biggest goal i'd ever set myself and the sort of paradox is it 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 was a goal that took everything i had all of my time all the money i could lay my hands on all my energy like tunnel vision focus on this thing a hundred percent focus on on this on this thing which meant zero percent thinking about what i was going to do afterwards and i think that my assumption always was well life's going to be awesome and actually life was really hard because the the you know this 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 ambition this goal that had been motivating me for for so so many years and so many setbacks and every time we we had a definite time window each year to do it and if we weren't completely ready fully funded fully insured everything else we had to postpone and we had to postpone several years in a row and each each time we failed i just became more motivated and then when we succeeded the the this thing that had been motive this dream suddenly evaporated and there was nothing there in its place so yeah I, I had zero motivation to do anything really after that trip. Um, Didn't feel like a bit like you leaving the army. Didn't like why should I go and do exercise? I've just done, and everyone's like, "Oh, you've just done sixty-nine back-to-back marathons!" Like you don't need to have another beer, have another slice of cake, you know. So like physically, like that summer got really out of really unfit as as, and it was just, and that was that was shit as well because there I am being asked to give give talks about the sort of pioneering feat of human endurance, and I hadn't put my running shoes on in like nine months, you know. (laughs) So um. So yeah, so so the sort of the, the, the story, the, the kind of myth of of Ben and the reality felt completely out of out of sync. Um and yeah, I, I struggled for a while. It took it took a long time. It took um I'm lucky enough to have some some friends of a, a beautiful house in South Africa and they said, Look, we've the whole family's go for Christmas. Come and come and stay come and stay with us, come and stay for a couple of weeks in South Africa in the, in the sunshine. And I went down there and I actually I took my bike, took my road bike and had I barely touched it all year and after a few days of like lying in the sun just doing nothing i was like ooh I feel like I a bike ride." that that like that's finally when that little spot came back again but it it took 9 9 months after that trip to sort of i think physically recover and kind of mentally sort of get 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 past that that, fe- that period of sort of like pfft, like there's nothing nothing motivating me i've done what i wanted to do shit
0: i think and this is my own personal feelings From my own experience of what I set out to be my dream, my goal. When I achieved it, uh, and then I was no longer doing it. It occurred to me that it's almost like I'm not saying that you shouldn't have dreams. Mm. You absolutely should, because they're the things that that motivate you and drive you. But having this one goal, this one thing that you become tunnel visioned on that I had to do and what drives you and drove my life be really wary of achieving that and having absolutely nothing on the other side because you can fall really hard and and what you've just mentioned rings a bell clearly on completely different planes but I yeah that leads nicely onto my next question which is, what was, what do you think you enjoy the most, organising the trip or executing it? <laughs> Oof.
1: It's it's really hard to pick. I mean, in in, in, in my mind, they're they're sort of intertwined and yeah the message from from people that want want to you know aspire to doing an expedition i i I almost try and say look the the expedition is the reward for getting through the really hard part which is going from having a dream to to the reality of being dropped off in an aircraft and and figuring out all the stuff that that it takes to to get to that point so yeah in some ways sort of getting to the the actual start line of the expedition means the hardest bit is over um and there's there's always a really weird transition where where life goes from being incredibly busy, um, juggling all all this stuff—the sort of physical training, organising all the kit, the clothing, nutrition, the, the satellite comms, navigation, the, the insurance, contingency planning, search and rescue, all this and media, sponsors, schools, charities—you know all this all this stuff. So um, I, I I dug out a diary the other day, sort of rummaging through my filing cabinet in, in lockdown for, from just before that expedition and it talked about closing my laptop in, in a in a shitty hotel in the in the in Punta Arena southern tip of Chile uh, in October like the day before we basically flew to Antarctica with like 300 unread emails you know just like realizing that I, I, I've literally run out of time I can't but I, it was absolutely manic 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 pressure and there's always this weird transition where I remember setting up my, my email you know, out of office autoresponder in, in like mid-October 2013 saying, I won't have access to email until late February next year. Um, you know, if you need to contact me, you, you can't. <laughs> yeah, like turning it off. And, and suddenly life becomes, I mean, you've got the sort of mad three days of flying to get to the start point, but suddenly life becomes really, really simple um, and and routine. So there's always this, this, this mad, like overnight transition from, from like, absolute chaos zero routine um to to to, to really really sort of methodical daily routine nothing changes um and that's that's i don't think that's become any any easier to, to deal with over the years but um it's it's something i i i sort of dread and and quite like actually there's always that moment of commitment like i can't be any more ready i've run out of time i've got to do it now um and that that's always yeah. There's always sort of apprehension that comes with that, and and, and all those things. Um, but yeah, as for, as as for what I've enjoyed the most to answer a question, I going uh, off on a wild tangent. It's really hard to say, I and mean, I think I'm, I'm 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 as proud of of the work that I've done to organise and fund these big projects as as I am of doing them. Um, probably if not more so, because that's the sort of unseen, deeply unglamorous bit of this of this bizarre career.
0: How do you convince a sponsor? Because I imagine there's a completely, you know, an incredibly large scale from left to right mm. from those who provide a very small but niche piece of equipment to people who are pumping an enormous amount of mm. money into things like helicopters, planes, mm. transport. How do you convince someone that actually you, Ben Saunders and are the real deal. You are reliable. You're not going to let them down as a brand and that you're going to complete what you've set out to yeah, achieve.
1: It's 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 an interesting challenge. My, my first ever meeting with a potential sponsor was 2000 or 2022. 22 uh, it was with my mum's my mama's boss at the time. So she out of out of pity I think had arranged this meeting with the MD. And I went in, I'd made this little sponsorship deck and printed it out and, and all the sort of facts and figures of what we're trying to do. And I was like, yeah, I'm heading up there with this guy, Penn Haddo, massively experienced. Uh, we're gonna be on the Arctic Ocean for two months. It's 5.4 million square miles of nothing. Um, no one out there, complete wilderness. And for only five grand, you can have your logo on my jacket. And he said, who the hell is gonna see our logo when you're in the middle of 5.4 million square miles of nothingness? <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> so yeah, so so sponsorship took a bit of figuring out, and um, and uh, gosh, I'm trying to think sort of big, big lessons along the way. Probably the for me, one of the turning points was um, 2003, 2004, and and landed my first ever proper big six figure sponsor um, com- company called Serco, who who are huge, but I'd I'd, ne- I'd never I'd never heard of them at the time. I was you know 25, and I was giving a giving a talk. And I was sort of cursing myself because I'd agreed to do this for free, but it was for the Duke of Edinburgh's Award, which which I don't even have. Didn't do it myself. It wasn't on offer at the school I was at. But um, but I I've on and off done some work with them over the years. And and, and the, the 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 young people that get the gold award, um, certainly up until recently, I think they've changed the location now. But they were always invited to to St James's Palace, and um, and and for many many years, the Duke of Edinburgh was there to like shake their hands and give them a little talk, and and they they often split the I don't know how many 200 young people up into groups of 50 and, and get four different interesting speakers to come along and it's often athletes, sports stars, interesting whoever yeah, politicians and I was asked to go and give a talk um, and of course it's for free for this charity so I rocked up and it was it was a few weeks before a deadline I'd, I'd set myself you know beyond which if I wasn't fully funded if I hadn't raised I don't know what it was 150 grand 200 grand at least it was a big budget um if I hadn't raised the money, I had to postpone my North Pole plans by another year. Um, so I was really stressed out, and like I, on the tube to this to, to, to you know Westminster, where it was, um, thinking, what the hell am I doing? I've got so much to it. and here I am doing a talk for free. I'm such an idiot. Gave the talk, and this guy came up to afterwards, who was the CEO of Circo, a guy called Chris Hyman, and he was very young. He 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 became CEO i think in his early 40s um, maybe in late 30s an extraordinary character um, and uh, south african originally he's of i guess indian descent grew up in durban yeah during sort of racist africa worked work for his dad's dad's car dealership was really good at money and accounting and came came to london with nothing with his girlfriend as an accountant and a few years later, he's suddenly, where well, he was CFO and then became CEO of Circo. But he wasn't what I had in mind as like a CEO. He wasn't this sort of power dressing, like middle-aged white dude. He was like young Indian guy in a, in a smart suit. And he was so enthusiastic. He came, sort of came bouncing up. He's like, shook my hand. He's like, oh, my name's Chris. I run Circo. We'd love to help out. And I, it just didn't, I'd never heard of Circo. It didn't really click. And I'd never seen that sort of enthusiasm. So I, I, I remember thinking, oh, he probably runs some little printing firm and he's going to offer to make me some, proposals or something and, and I was like I, I'm i terribly busy I'm really sorry he's like I'd love to meet I'd love to meet and talk about it I was like I'm really I've got a lot to do because I'm you know I'm just really close to deadline he's like no, no I do you please like give me your card here's my business card I'll get my get my secretary to, to to arrange a meeting I was like oh okay then went back home you know looked up circa I was like oh fuck <laughs> and went to go and met him at some hotel like a few days later and there, literally it was like there was like a sort of room outside the, the room that he was holding court in with like politicians and journalists and I was like oh and I think we had I think it was like 15 minutes was that was the meeting and we ended up talking for an hour and um he was extraordinary I mean one of the most amazing leaders I've met and um and he just made it happen it was extraordinary so in, in some ways it was complete luck in other ways it was like putting myself out there and you know telling the story and kind of and and, and 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 yeah so so that was that was extraordinary and he sort of put a team together at the Circo to sort of manage the whole thing and, and they said look there's gonna be one one challenging meeting like we're, we're a public company like we need to make sure we're doing our due diligence and, and the tough meeting is gonna be with our finance team just going through your budget so make sure you're well prepared for that so I did this like massive i don't know how many pages it was excel spreadsheet everything from from chartering helicopters international flights to to thermal underwear toothbrush like everything everything we had to buy um sat in this room with these sort of boffins in this boardroom calculators and laptops going through everything and finally one of them sort of circled something and 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 looked at me, and I basically tried to trim the budget down as much as I could and we'd bought like we'd we'd budgeted for like the cheapest possible economy flights to to Moscow and out through Russia and um, he looked up me he said this this is this is not enough for, for business class and like we we as a sponsor we want to make sure that you that you're sort of well rested and you know, he's like let's put a zero on that <laughs> And it was just, it was just like, I mean, this, this for me was like several years in, and again, I was, I was absolutely broke at the time. I just fell off my chair. It was extraordinary. I'd already sold my car. I think I had a, what was it? It was a Peugeot three hundred nine or something terrible, and I, 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 I sold, sold that to pay the rent or something. I didn't have a car, and um, and I put some money in the budget to buy. I wanted to buy an old Land Rover, and and I had a mate of mine who was who was sort of helping me organize the trip. And the plan was that he was going to do drive around the UK talking to schools while I was on the expedition and kind of telling them what I was doing and blah blah. blah. But we didn't; neither of us had a car, so we put a few in the budget to buy a car. And they were like, "No, no, we can we can sort you out with a car. We'll get you a company car." So we had this five series BMW Estate, brand new. <laughs> it was just like finally, woo! I've yeah, made it. So they were. Did they you get were, to spec it? Uh, no, it was quite old man spec. There was there was there's a lot of wood, um, yeah. But ah, oh, it was it was fantastic. So. Um, yeah so they they were dream sponsor but also they were confusing because they didn't sell anything to the public uh and, and up until that point my, my my pitch had been all about pr and publicity and i'll I'll get your brand out there i'll try and get in the news and they weren't in, they're like no actually we do some really controversial stuff we we run the atomic weapons establishment we've we've got the the franchise for gatso speed cameras like we we do a lot of stuff that the public really don't don't like um but we do have i think at that point it was like one hundred and forty thousand employees all over the world and they're like this is something really cool for them to follow, and all feel they're involved with, and, and you can do a whole you know eighteen months worth of talks and things afterwards. So for them, it was it was it wasn't about publicity. It was it was a sort of internal thing, um, unifying focus was the buzzword we came up with. But it was it was an amazing. They were, I mean, they were a fantastic sponsor. Um, yeah, dream dream couple of years.
0: That's superb. How did you find the strain in relationships whilst you were away? Because what you were doing wasn't exactly a walk in the park it's incredibly dangerous Mm. Uh, did you damage any relationships because of it?
1: Mm. I mean it's been it's been I'm I'm finally happily married now but that took a long time and I, I think there was always the sort of the the kind of Again, it's like the myth of Ben Torners and the reality. Like, like it was, it was a great chat up line for years. Like, really, I'm just, I mean, just I had the trump card. It doesn't matter who you sit down with. It's like, yeah, how wealthy they are they? They haven't done what I've done. So, so, so that was awesome. But actually, the reality was that I, I, I was so selfishly focused on what I was trying to do that there wasn't any room really for for, for normal, healthy relationships for 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 a long time. So it kind of, yeah, it, it, it sort of took its toll. That was always pretty pretty turbulent looking looking back. Um, I, do, I, I suppose I,
0: it's one thing you don't have to worry about, really, if you are a bit of a single, single—not
1: going to say single playboy—but <laughs> but, um,
0: but it, it removes the added pressure. Mm.
1: Yeah, in some ways, I, I think my—I think looking back, I think my mum probably had the worst deal. I remember with 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 Penn on that first expedition, in two thousand one, his his wife was relatively okay with it. He had a young son at the time. Married, obviously, and, and and his wife was cool with it, but his mum and Pen was in his mid forties. I think his mum was freaking out, and 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 Pen's theory was that mums don't think of like Ben, the man who does this for a living and has done for twenty years and is an expert at this. They 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 automatically think of like twelve year old schoolboy Ben who's forgotten his packed lunch and you know um my day across the road. So my my mum's always she always worries more than anyone else when I'm away on expeditions, but I think also she's been. She's been my number one the, the longest running supporter slash sponsor when I was staying with her in my twenties, you know, skint. Um so um yeah, I think I think emotionally she has the the toughest time of it.
0: What's next for Ben Saunders?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I went back to Antarctica. The last big expedition was end of twenty seventeen, beginning of twenty eighteen. Um the plan initially was to was to do a sort of funny dog leg crossing of the of the continent and, and to to essentially finish the journey that, that, um, Henry Worsley died just, just, bef- just so close to finishing, um, two years, two years before me. And, um, I'd known Henry quite well. He, he'd become a, a, a bit like John Ridgway, like, like extraordinary kind of friend slash mentor. And, um, and he'd done a couple of trips in Antarctica and, and, and I had to pinch myself sometimes he was when he was getting ready for that, for that, his last solo expedition, um, he was, I think he'd inherited a, a, a property down near Henley and I was living, I'd, I'd sort of made a premature move out of London at the time and renting a little cottage down there. So I'd, I'd go and spend time with him when he was sort of getting ready for that trip and, and he really wanted my advice on, on nutrition and geeky bits of gear and equipment and ski bindings and how to set the tent up and all this kind of stuff. And... Um, and it always felt a like slightly out of body experience, like 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 he was a freaking colonel in the SAS, and and here he's asking my advice, like you know. And we get we we. I mean, one evening, we I think it was the last time I saw him. We, we went, um, must have been September that that year. Still like beautiful warm weather, and we and we drove. We met up at a pub, and we had dinner at this pub. Sat outside on this on this sort of pub bench table. Crisps and pint of beer, ordered a curry or a pie or something, and looking at maps of Antarctica, and I was just, I just trying to think, how fucking cool is this? He was such a great bloke. So he was, yeah, he was someone that that I, I was a great friend, and and also someone who I really looked up to because he was this really a very interesting character and and like a real kind of renaissance man like he he was a writer he was an artist he used to paint things he just had these bizarre he like bred ferrets at one point just just t- totally it, it, completely completely eccentric eccentric guy and um and yeah he's just a joy to be with so so when i when i heard the news and i was in the us for on some swanky speaking gig at a ridiculous hotel like palm trees outside and it was i, I had a voicemail from his sister-in-law before I saw the news and basically telling what happened and um or I think telling me that he'd been rescued and because he died in hospital in Chile and I, I remember thinking like what 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 a what a brave thing to do like to call for help that close to the finish and to have the sort of presence of mind to realize that that you're in trouble you, you need you need help um and I thought he was sort of home and dry and then I got the next message saying he, he died in hospital and, and I was yeah it really knocked me sideways and um and my immediate reaction was I, I wanted nothing more to do with, with that world ever again. Like it just seemed so, I was like, fuck, I've just been so selfish for so many years. Like, you know, always, always think about how tough it is for me, for me, but I never think about what I'm putting other people through by doing these trips. So, yeah, my immediate reaction was, was like, ah, oh, that, that's, that's it, I'm never going back there again. That's just, you know, ridiculous. And then a few things started happening. One, one was that, um, there's a company called ALE who did all, my, all the logistics and aviation in Antarctica for me and and, and I, I have a couple of friends that work for them and, and they suddenly because of all the sort of press around Henry's death they had like a record number of inquiries for people wanting to do solo who'd never done anything solo but suddenly they want to go and finish this journey and then it was either chatting to Henry's widow Joanna or his, or his son Max one of them Kind of mentioned in an off, off-hand way that they're, they're like well are you considering doing it and and if you did you, you'd have our blessing and, and we'd love it if you consider supporting the endeavour Fund. yeah um so i thought like, well maybe i should um and in a strange way like i've i've got the the experience under my belt to, that this actually isn't a completely far-fetched thing to, to to have a go at so maybe i and and the exhibition came together sort of more quickly and, and more easily than any trip I've ever done. I think by that point, of course, I, I'd got a track record, I'd done the, done the squat expedition, So the money all came together fairly quickly and, and I was relatively fit anyway. So I knew exactly who to call to get the skis and sledges. And it just came together really, compared to previous expeditions, like just easily. And suddenly I'm in Antarctica and I sort of realized very early on on that trip that, that that rather than like inspiring me to sort of push myself even harder actually Henry's story the one thing it did inspire me to do was was play it safe and, and I was engaged at that point so I was like well I've got a lot to come home to now so so it was a in terms of my own sort of mindset like a much more cautious ex- expedition um, I definitely wasn't pushing myself to, to to the point of collapsing with exhaustion the way the talk and I were and partly also because I'd, I'd already done that trip, I'd, I was already quite quite content. And even if I'd got all the across to the Ross Ice Shelf, which is what Henry planned to do, it still would have been a, a massively shorter expedition than, than the Scott expedition was. So it was a sort of strangely, it was a strange trip, because I, I, I sort of realized it also had a really interesting start. So Henry started from a place, a place called Birkenau Island um, on the kind of Chilean side of, of Antarctica, which is an unusual place to start from. When I was dropped off, little ski plane, yeah, you know, the only person that had been there before me um, in, in in recent memory was was Henry. You know, two years before me, so no, no one had, and and it's it's a properly challenging start. You've got to get across this ice shelf, up through the mountains, crevasses. Like it's pretty sketchy terrain, and and it's beautiful. You're skiing through this mountain range, up this long valley, and then you finally get up onto the plateau, and then it's all familiar, just featureless nothingness. And the plan was to then get to the pole and go down, and and this is what um, Lou Rudd and Colin O'Brady both both did a year after me was then to follow a route down I think called the Leverett Glacier. But that's used by tracked vehicles now. So there's basically a, a road and it's marked with flags every hundred meters. And and the closer I got to the pole, the closer I thought that was going to be a really unfulfilling end to what had been a really challenging start to the expedition, like following the flags to the finish for, for two, three weeks was going to really shit. Um, so I so I kind of also, the I, I because I hadn't been really gunning it, I was running lowish on food. So that was like in in the press release, that was the reason. Like Ben's running on food, doesn't want to take the risk. But but actually, I didn't really have the motivation to to, to sort of carry on beyond the pole. I'd got solo to the South Pole, first Brit to go solo both poles, third in history. Like that's that. Actually, that's pretty cool. Um, and so I, I finished that expedition at, at the South Pole. In, in really good shape physically mentally like, like absolutely fine i'd lost a little bit of weight but i'd put on weight i mean i was literally was absolutely fine so that was incredibly satisfying to a sort of to feel like walking solo to the south pole quite a challenging route was something that was absolutely within my comfort zone um, and did it relatively smoothly but it also made me think this is the least adventurous thing i could be doing i've totally figured this game out if if i can relatively easily walk southern south pole like this isn't and i always talk about i was t- 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 talking to you just now about, about self-belief and challenging yourself i was like i've got to take my own medicine here like this isn't this isn't testing me in the way that it used to this is what i know how to do now this is what i'm good at this is what i can do relatively easily um so i was like okay what's the what's the pivot gonna be here and i also realized I think this is part of this was sort of Tarka's influence, that that as I've got older, I've sort of cared less and less about this idea of sort of public external validation. I think uh, early on in my career, I wanted to be famous. I wanted to I wanted to be, you know, sort of known for what I did and to be stopped for autographs. And, 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 and now I'm in my 40s. I'm quite glad that no one recognises me, and I don't. Get, you know, I'm, I'm not a Bear Grylls or Ben Fogel or whatever, and nor does that world appeal to me. I didn't. I didn't get into this to become a an entertainer on telly. Like that was never the dream. Um, so, um, so I'm like, okay, well, what what am I going to do with this? And in a strange way, like I, I'm now at a point where I, I well, pre-COVID. Was was making a, a wildly well paid living, flying around the world, giving giving talks. Yeah, I'm um, you know, with a big American speaker agency, and I, I, I'm still relatively bargain basement compared to the Tony Blair's and Colin Powell's and Condoleezza Rice's Hillary Clinton's, who get six figure figures. Uh, be
0: considerably but, you know, less controversial, though. Baby. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, for, but but on the moral <laughs> compass scale, yeah. let in fact, no, let's just yeah, leave that exactly. One there. yeah.
1: <laughs> But, but I still get paid bonkers amounts of money to, to, to stand up and tell a story on stage for an hour. And um, so, so in a strange way, I, I could carry on forever just making a good living out of, out of speaking. Um, but I'm not really wired that way. And, uh, and, and you can absolutely do that. Look, look at you know, people like Joe Simpson touching the void. I mean, that, that, that exhibition was in the 80s. And he's still in demand as a public speaker talking about the same, the same trip. So it's it's not like you need to keep doing new trips to stay to stay relevant as a speaker. It doesn't doesn't there's no there's no correlation. So but I, yeah I, I but annoyingly stupidly I'm not wired that way and I, I okay I need something else I need, I need something else to get my teeth into and um, and part of that is 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 bizarrely having having sort of sworn to myself leaving the army you know that I was never going to be a businessman or wear a suit or anything like that. Looking back. I've absolutely been a businessman. Like the, these expeditions, I've, I've, I've raised and spent—I don't know how much now—three million quid, probably, on expeditions. Um, so I've sort of figured out how to make this commercially viable and, and to make a living out of this stuff now. So, so in a weird way, I have been a businessman, and actually, it's, it's it's businesses that have made these expeditions possible. So. I'm I'm doing a few things at the moment. I, I've I've got involved with a company called White Desert, who are a British company but operate out of Cape Town, and they basically fly people in and out of Antarctica. So it's a sort of aviation logistics company. Um, started out originally as as a as a sort of high luxury travel company, and that's still what they do. Um, a big part of what it is 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 taking in very wealthy clients. 12 people at the time to Antarctica and they've got two camps down there and they do wonderful trips they've got incredible guides down there you get climbing and skiing and you know to see the penguins flying to the South Pole um, and it's a bonkers business so I, I, I was down I was based in Cape Town um, between November last year and February this year um, working with them um, flew into, into Antarctica twice took my wife in it's a totally different way to see Antarctica because they use a Gulfstream private jet to fly it out. They've got a runway on, on a glacier, but it's a, it's a really cool business. And I, I've known the founder for a long time. So, um, so I'm sort of working with them at the moment as a sort of consultant type role and sort of working on, on a few big projects for them. But, um, but potentially with a view to get involved as, as a, you know, kind of buying a stake in the company, getting involved as a, as a, as a, as a you know, co-owner partner in that. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, and then there's also part of me. I remember back on the on the going up the Beardmore Glacier with Tarka, 2013. Um, th- and one of the weird things, obviously, the, the Beardmore is the largest valley glacier on Earth. took us took us a week to get up, 120 something miles long. It's it's just a vast, vast bit of ice. And we had we had so little data to go on because so few people have, have been up it. Um, Tarka Tarka and I, are the only living people to have gone up it and back down it again, which is something both Scott and and Shackleton so it's it's a really cool place and it is very remote like it took us a a month and a bit walking just just to get there so um walking out the Beardmore, this kind of magical place you walk past these mountains that were all named by Scott or Shackleton there's Mount Kathleen that Scott named after his wife there's one called the cloud maker which always has a lot of cloud at the top Shackleton named it and 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 you'd see and we were on a mission like we were just trying to get to the pole so we didn't really have any time to hang around And, and every day for a week we'd see these valleys Stretching off east and west, either side of the glacier, that you know we were certain no one had ever walked out, and it's just, and we had we were lucky going up it. We had good weather most of the time, and it's beautiful. It's like bits of it are like deep frozen lake district like these beautiful valleys. And I'm thinking, no one's ever been down there. Like, how amazing is that? Like, how annoying that we can't do that. So I sort of started hatching this plan then. That that how cool would it be to go back there one day, uh, but do it sensibly, like fly in. Have a little base camp with a chef and and heaters and you know comfy tents and you know um, and then and then and then do little day trips into the mountains or down these valleys and you know um, and then and I started thinking how cool would it be to take like some young people down here and try and try and and see what they make of it and then I was like okay wouldn't it be cool to have like a young artist a young a young scientist a young photographer a young filmmaker a young writer a young poet uh, and and then maybe I could sort of match them with amazing sort of mentors and make the whole thing so. So I'm still chipping away at that idea. I, I love that idea of taking this sort of team of of like young people, late teens, early twenties, and, and 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 kind of veteran mentors down there just for a couple of weeks, but to somewhere interesting, Antarctica, somewhere that no one's ever been, and kind of telling telling the story through their through their eyes, through young people's eyes, and, and and sharing the story, because I think. I mean, t- to me, obviously, Antarctica has been a big part of my life, and it's such a such an extraordinary place. And and, and there's a lot of misconception. Like a lot of people think that they've seen a sort of Attenborough documentary, and, and they assume it's sort of overrun with penguins, which is not not the case. There's nothing nothing living in the middle. Penguins are on the on the beach, you know, um, uh, and and also the sort of stories coming out of Antarctica. I- invariably, it's either scientific data, which is which is which is profoundly alarming and depressing. Um, or it's slightly old-fashioned stories of people, weirdos like me, you know, trying to... There's a wonderful line, um, a lady called Sarah Wheeler wrote, wrote a beautiful book called Terra Incognita about Antarctica. And she said she feared, this was years ago, she said she feared it was turning into a into a testosterone zone where bearded, bearded hard men went to see how dead they could get. <laughs> anyway, I... I I read that before I met her. And she actually was wonderful. We, we got on brilliantly. But um, I, I, before that, I was like, oh, she's going to hate me. I didn't have a beard at the time, but I was like, she's going to hate me. And we got on brilliantly. But um, but, but I think that there could be very different stories coming out of this place. And to me, Antarctica is, is unique. N- nobody owns it. It's it's a continent the size of China and India put together. It's fucking massive. Nobody owns it. It's governed, governed by a treaty. It's, it's basically the world's largest nature reserve. Um, and it's compared to anywhere else on the planet like it is being managed really well collect- collectively by by human beings and it's the only place on the planet where when you land nobody checks your passport because it doesn't matter nobody owns it no one's claimed it no one can claim it so it's just this 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 route really, to me this like really um, almost sort of utopian place where the only thing that matters when when you when you when you turn up there is how well you can get on with other people and get on with the job and everything else becomes utterly irrelevant so it's a magical place and and i'm keen to sort of tell that story in in a different way in in the future so yeah that's the that's the vague plan
0: you've almost sold it to me (laughs) (laughs) but i'll definitely take the five star version yeah (laughs) it blows my mind ben um the the whole
1: scale of it (laughs) blows my mind
0: but we need to talk about cars. Cars, yeah. <laughs> What's on your driveway at the moment?
1: Oh gosh, yeah. Well, well, I, I I'm, I'm a talked about, you know, Antarctica and, and conservation. I, I I'm, a, I'm a sort of conflicted conservationist because I, I've been a petrol head since I passed my driving test. Um, uh, right now on the drive, we, my, my, my wife's at work today. She's, um, it's quite comical. She's, she's training to be a garden designer, so she's, she's gardening up at a big stately home up in up in Ross on wye and um, so she gets paid minimum wage. To do this, to do this gardening job, and she drives a brand new Range Rover to get there, and um, and she wears Canada Goose, so she, <laughs> she's getting paid minimum, minimum wage. I think I don't know what they thought of her when she, when she rocked up. So she's got a uh, she has a Vela at the moment. Um, I've got a Discovery Disco Five. Um, I've I've been, been sponsored by Land Rover for eleven years now, um, and it's a funny one. They were they were very early on my, on my sort of completely naive hit list of dream sponsors. They were near the top. Partly because I always wanted a Land Rover. One of my first driving lessons around a field with my stepdad when I was fourteen or fifteen was in his old. I'm trying to think, what that was probably a Series Two. I'm not sure, um, but that was my that was my first ever time I I drove a car in a field, and I remember the the, the sort of the the little air vents under the under the windscreen. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so I'd always loved Land Rovers, and, and I'd also seen like Ranul Fines had been working with them for years, and they sponsored a trip. I don't think it actually came to fruition, but he was planning to go across the Bering Straits using a sort of am- amphibious Land Rover. Speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So, So I'd, I'd seen this sort of connection with Land Rover and, and him and with other explorers. So they were, they were on my hit list. But the, it took, between first cold calling Land Rover and, and finally signing a contract with them was, was six years of getting wow. turned down and told no. So there's mm. yeah, again, there's, it took it took a while. And I think eventually someone someone there was like, We we quite we, we sort of valued your persistence and the fact that you're still you're still doing this stuff. So you know. And Oh just shut him up and give him yeah. a <laughs> And it's strange, I've sort of been around the block enough now to, to for, for for this current situation and JLR obviously are really, really, really struggling um as as I'd imagine every automotive manufacturer is right now. But, um, but I, I first signed a deal with Land Rover in 2008, and we sort of pitched this thing kind of early that year, big meeting with the, the CEO at the time and their marketing team, and they they were on the verge of committing like a lot of funding for three-year plan of expeditions. And then they said, you know, when things kicked off that year, they're like, oh, we, we just haven't got the budget now, so we can we can give you a car, but please do not say that we're sponsoring you because we haven't got budget. budget. Um, and... Um, we actually got, I was working with a friend in London who has a sponsorship agency and, and he got approached by Suzuki who uh, for some reason had some budget that year. And I, I very nearly, nearly, nearly did a deal with Suzuki because JLI had no money and, and thankfully <laughs> didn't. Um, and He could have had a Jimny. Yeah, exactly. exactly. New N- N- ones are cool if, if I can take my JLI hat off for a second. They're, they're, they're cool. Um, but... Um, yeah, thankfully I, I stayed with them, and of course JLR had the incredible resurgence in their fortunes. Like China was really big for their business for many, many years. So, so eventually they were able to put put really meaningful funding into 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 particularly the, the Scott exhibition. So they've been a, yeah dream sponsor for years, and and, and, I, and I've been super spoiled in that they they swap the cars every every year normally. Um, it's taken a bit longer now. Nothing, nothing nothing's happening, but um, but I've I've had a whole so the first ever Landro was was it was, a, was a, a sort of ex-press. Um, a disco 3 that had been thrashed within an inch of its life, and um, but it was really cool. It was, it was a ladder, and and, um, and then and then after a few months of that, they said, Oh, can you order order your next car, please? and, and just do it on the website, send us a link. Um, so I was like, Oh, well, I'm just gonna. So I just chose this like really budget spec discovery. That I think it was when they went from three to four, so it was a disco 4, but I just chose like super basic spec and had that fantastic after a year. Uh, or 11 months or 10 months, where it was, they're like, Oh, you need to order the next one. And they said, But can you spec it? Just like tick a few more boxes because we have to basically they, they get auctioned to <laughs> dealers, I think, and they're like, They don't like the real budget, right? So, this after a couple of years of that, this just got just ridiculous like, like ticking every like, TV's in the back, yeah, you know, heated seat, fantastic, yeah, massage seat, yeah. yeah. And um, it sort of reached the zenith where, where <laughs> when I came back from Antarctica 2013 after the squat expedition. Um, they were like, "Oh, you need to choose your next car. Have whatever you like." Mm. I was like, "Can I get a Range Rover? Is it whatever you like?" So I had a when I came back from that trip, 2013, I had a five-liter supercharged V8, oh, full-fat nice. Range Rover, vo- yeah, autobiography with all. It was a proper, proper pimp spec, blacked-out <laughs> windows, 21, 22-inch wheels. What they were oh, the biggest God. I could get. Every massage seats, full. It just it was ridiculous. Yeah. And. Um, and then I gave a talk at the, at the Royal Geographic Zone in London and, and, and because I was speaking, I got to park my car right outside and mm. some of the JLR execs were there and, um, and we walked outside and I was like, okay, I'll see you later, lads. Bloop, bloop. And they're like, they're like is that, that your car? <laughs> <laughs> they like, like whoa no that's that like maybe like footballer or like anthony joshua or something but but like not not that's not that's not an explorer's car that's like sort of arab 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 Sheikh slash yeah you know, russian mafia car so so i then got downgraded to, to well when the disco I had, I had two or three years of range rovers loved those and then the disco five came out so i've got discovery five now, which is which is it's a divisive design like a lot of people get wound up by the, the wonky number plate on the back but um but actually, as a thing to drive, I think it's it's really impressive, and I, I'm not I'm not just towing the party line. But having gone from from several years of Disco fours, which which I loved because they're like mm. a van, yeah, yeah. you fold the seats down, you've got this massive space in the back. The the, the five is much more Range Rover like, and actually going from a Range Rover into a Disco five, I thought I was going to be really disappointed. It's very similar. I think it might be the same chassis. The steering wheels are the same. That a lot of the interiors are the same. Yeah. To um, well, as so, you know, JLR they
0: they help. Us out, mission mm. of sport a lot, and we've got a Disco Five, and mm. it's a
1: superb.
0: It's vehicle. a, it's really, uh, really good. And I
1: just, I, I get quite amused by people that that slag them off, who who obviously have never driven one or never been in one at you know, because it's just, it's just as a. As a car, it's so much better than Disco four. It's lighter. It doesn't it doesn't wallow around. You're not you like slamming the brakes on kind of roundabout thinking, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm going around about thinking, Oh am gonna stop here? Um it's just it's it's as good. You can drive up to Scotland in, in as much comfort as any any German estate car. And then you press a couple of buttons and it will do anything a defender can do, if not better. Yeah, All the, the the um the land of restrictions instructors saying the disco five is the, the best car they use off road. It's just so capable. So it's it's an amazing feat of engineering. So I, yeah, I I like that. And then there is there's one more. There's my my secret secret car, which is in the in in a we have a sort of crumbling shed. I'm just hoping the roof doesn't collapse on it because it's, it just about fits in the in the gap of our of falling down little old buildings. Um, but I bought this last summer, so this was this was my sort of midlife crisis. Um, it's it's a nine eleven GT3, so a nine nine one two GT3. Um, it's it's a it's a PDK automatic. Um, it's in, uh, in in the UK we call it we call it crayon. In America, I call it chalk, but it's that sort of gray, light gray colour, um, and that was a that was a bit rash rash purchase last summer, and I think in some ways it might have been like the final V sign up at my stepdad, who was the one who said when I came back from North Pole in in 2001, mm. in 30 whatever 34 grand of debt yeah. and like completely yeah on my arse, and and, hit, and 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 I remember him saying like. I, yeah i just thought always thought it was foolish the fact that you ever thought that you could make a living out of this so so I, i've bought a house last year in the Cotswolds in gloucestershire so i bought the house nice. i was like right what, there's one more thing missing here mm-hmm. um i bought the silly car and uh, yeah love it love it love it i had um so 2018 when we got married i got lent um uh jaguar lent me an f-type svr for 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 a few days as i as i went car. loved that thing um yeah and and I went to them and said, look, I'm not asking for a free one, but can you do me a deal? And they weren't able to help. And and, and obviously that that was mm. when things were JLR's fortunes were starting to shift a little bit, and they were tightening budgets, so they couldn't help out. I was like, well, okay. What 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 would the what would I what would the dream be here? And I'd strangely, I was looking at all sorts of things. I was looking at like Nissan GT. I'm a total boy racer at heart. Like I love. Part of me loves. I had a bef- just before my. Land Rover deal. I had, had a. It was a Mark IV Golf GTI. The sort of I think it's one point eight turbo. Is and the, I had that
0: the, the slightly boxy
1: one. Boxy, one? yeah, not not particularly great car, but it, I I love that because I had a turbo yeah, but... and I had a ridiculous dump valve and a loud exhaust. <laughs> and I just lo- love that. So part part <laughs> of me is Top total, total, racer, total unashamed like baseball cap wearing boy racer, you know. Um. So I was looking at Nissan GTRs like, and, and and then I just saw this this GT3. It was a, you know bought it from a Dealer in London. It was just like dr- dream spec. And um, and yeah, it, it, it's 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 a I mean it's a tough car to keep to keep in lockdown. <laughs> it's free. free. I, I I use it for the occasional trip to to waitrose, but my wife hates that. She's like, why are we not in the Land Rover? It's where we can actually have a conversation and like listen to music and like it's <laughs> <Shut> so, <yeah. laughs> it's so loud and it's God. so bumpy and and so impractical. Yeah, you know, but I God, I love that thing. And um, it's interesting. Yeah, you know my, my first car. 17 years old, it was, was a Mark II Escort. And it was such a milestone in my life. Like it, it, was an, it wasn't even a nice one, it was a 1.3 popular plus in some like shitty yellow covered in rust. But that was a turning point in my life because suddenly I had I had a car, I had freedom. We were living in, in like rural Kent and suddenly I couldn't see my mates, I could have a girlfriend, I could drive mates around. And it was it was the biggest thing, biggest physical thing I'd ever owned at that point. Um, so that was, it. I had this, this incredible like emotional connection with that first car. And in a strange way, getting this, getting this ridiculous Porsche, as, as, has, I've, I feel the same sort of connection. Like in some ways, it's classic, like male ego, willy waving. Like, look at the car I've got. But, it, but as a like, as a kind of statement to myself that like things have worked out okay. Like a little reward to myself, a little pat on the back. Like okay, you've you, you, things have figured out. Yeah, you know, worked out all right here. It's that, uh, you know that
0: does resonate. I mean, funnily enough, as you well know, my boss, um, Jim. Likes a Porsche 911, <laughs> and he keeps telling me that no garage is complete without a 911. And so right now, yeah, the much maligned 996 is mm. getting a bit of a resurgence, and is and yeah. really good value prices. Yeah, good right value, now. good value. It just so happens that my wife and I are in the market for a new runaround. So mm. we've got a 130 M Sport, which is great, but it's mm. it's getting a bit old. And so. I've very, very nearly had my wife convinced that we needed a Porsche 911 996. <laughs> and that was the best option for a, a runaround. And ultimately, it's, mm-hmm. it's her that's It's going to be driving it around. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. However, she wants a, uh, my wife wants an automatic and no 911 is right unless it's in a manual. Clearly, as I've <laughs> been led to believe. So, yeah, I'm not sure... Um, I mean, she she just look, you know, my wife just doesn't want to drive a manual, so Mm. ah, so close, (laughs) so close. And because when I left the army a year ago, I got my pension payout, and the car I'd always lusted after, and it was connected to helicopters for one reason or another, blah. Um, But it was, I thought it was beautiful. Was the BMW Z3 M Coupe, which. I don't know why I'm saying this because it'll just get people to say it even more, but I hate it when people call it a bread van or a clown shoe. Um, it just makes me want to club him to death with my phone.
1: I, 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 I love them. Car. Cool car. There's a guy, some point when I was living in London years and years ago, there's a, a sort of neighbour, of someone near me. There was one park near my house whole time to run past it. Oh, just, I, it's such a cool design. Love it. And, and
0: so I've got one now. Mm. Um, I hey. you know, it was my well done. You've done your time in the military. You got your pension payout, yeah. etc. Um, and and it was mm. a good price to be fair. And uh, I blame collectingcars.com which is like an addiction. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we I, collecting I cars. Oh it.
1: man, I, I get that email. It's just oh, it's like it's like porn. It's like daily porn. And I just <laughs> I, yeah.
0: Well, the thing is, I called up uh, Edward Lovett, who runs it, and said, "Is that or uh, Z3M coupe still for sale he said yeah it is and I said I'll have it and he says I think we bought very well <laughs> <laughs> and then as soon as I paid for it I thought, what have I done oh god and so I sent a uh, I sent a message to my wife and said um, <clears throat> yeah you know that that money in the account just don't be so sh- <laughs> shocked, but a massive chunk's about to leave it and she goes what have you done and I said I bought another car and she goes you bought you a new car haven't you and I said yeah and she said is it by any chance blue Rear-wheel drive with two seats. I <laughs> said, "Yeah." She goes, "I know you brought it," <laughs> but but it makes me smile. And yesterday, uh, I headed up to um, to, to mm. the boss's house um, because we're delivering Mazdas around the country for Team Rubicon. Mm. So, a massive thank you to Mazda for that, and Team Rubicon are now using them. And uh, and so yesterday, I had a really really nice day of, of, of driving different vehicles. You know, everything from a van to a. Well, you know, a uh, Discovery 5 and my uh, Z3M Coupe and a uh, CX-5, mm. you know, it was just, it brought a lot of joy back into the day, and and then we jumped into Ben's <laughs> combat-scarred uh, battle wagon, his Volvo estate, and he drove us back down <laughs> south, and, uh, uh, you know, it was just a really nice day, and made me enjoy driving again, so... Mm. And so yeah, I'll start to wrap yeah. this up now, otherwise we can just talk <laughs> for hours about about cars. Um and next time we can talk about how you came to a Mission Motorsport event launch control and left a lady flustered uh, after several launches Yeah, that was in that was that was a,
1: a, a week a week after I bought the Porsche, so so I, I was still getting oh, used to well, it. We can talk about it now and, then and, if you want. And, 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 <laughs> yeah so so well, Jim was like oh we're doing we're doing launch, launch control like he's like I know, I know it's sort of better at going around corners than a straight line but it'll still be quick like come come and have a go see what it see what it'll do and also it has a, it's got a thing called launch control where if you press the right button to the right combination, you basically left foot on the brake floor it it revs to what five and a half thousand or something and holds it there a few seconds and then you size it at the brake and it just goes and um and strangely e- even though I I bought this car, I'd had it for a week and I just, every time I saw it, every time I'd fill that petrol station, I'd walk back out and think, fuck, like I, I can't believe that's my car, that's just ridiculous, but it still, it hadn't really sort of sunk in in some ways and uh, and, and and there's a big learning curve to those cars and, and, and also I didn't really, like there are some full-blown Porsche fanboys and I, I'm, I'm not sure I was one of them back then, I kind of, I'm like, it's a really amazing car, like it's it's fucking brilliant, but I'm not really into the whole... The whole, you know, I just I like all sorts of cars, and 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 that was lovely thing about that event. There were, there were people there in McLarens, and there were people there in in like tuned up Civics, and 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 everyone there was a car geek, and 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 it was, yeah, there were just different sorts of cars. It wasn't like, oh, that's a brilliant car, and that's a shit car. They were just cars. Um, but I, but what was amazing was that I did I don't know how many 4 ball launches, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, up and down the runway till I ran out of petrol. And then my wife WhatsApp me. She's like, "Oh, can you get some olive oil on the way home? Stop at a farm shop or something." So basically, I was just said was like pootle home again in this thing that I would just been thrashing down the runway, nine thousand RPM every time I'm in launch control, and it was just did it perfectly. Happy, and I just got back home, put it in the shed, and 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 it's fine the next day. And there were people there with all sorts of tuned up Japanese things that were overheating and blowing you know, pipes coming off and things, and yeah. And the 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 Porsche just lapped it up. Just just you cane it, and it, it was. It was it was easier to drive at 120 than it, than it is at 20. It hates going slowly. It's always like goading you to sort of go faster.
0: It's an extraordinary piece of engineering. It's
1: really that, so that's one like, second. But I yeah, there, there was a, a young couple there. So there was a guy um, manning the barbecue and 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 his lovely wife. I, can't, I embarrass you can't remember their names. But he, I think Jim had maybe said look they'd love a go in the car and and um, and that was I, I didn't do a single run on my own. There was always a passenger and, and occasionally I'd let people drive it. So it was just just so much fun. And to me, that's the joy of these sorts of cars, especially events like that. Like it's not for me. I'm not. I'm not going to go and drive down to Gloucester and like drive around, like check me out. I, I'm, it's it's for having fun in with other people. Like that's that's the magic of it. Um, and uh, certainly, this this this. this young guy and his and his wife and and she was like oh I've never been in a car like that I've never been in a port yeah cool can we have a go and uh, I did a and, and I for some reason stuffed my stuffed the launch I wasn't happy with how I what I'd done so we're sort of pooting around the back of the track and I was like I was like do you mind if we do another one she's like no no, no I'd like <laughs> so we, we did several runs and, I, and, then, and then I gave her husband a go yeah so it was just oh it was such a such a joy a lot of a lot of fun. did
0: you tell her that you're a polar explorer
1: I might have done yeah <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely have to. Right, we'll wrap it up
0: with three quick fire questions. So, mm. last meal on earth.
1: Last meal, on that. ooh. It's a toss up between either either my wife's lasagna or massive ribeye steak. <laughs> Power or handling? Ooh. I would say handling, because I was looking at some really silly GTRs and then then, tuned up literal LM20s, 800 horsepower, and and went with the GT3. So sort of handling with a fair bit of power. Yeah, Yeah. nice. Cute cat or scruffy dog? Scruffy dog, every day of the week. (gasps)
0: Good answer. (laughs) Good answer to that three. (laughs) Ben, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. A lot of fun. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in the flesh soon absolutely as soon as we're um, and yeah bloody race remembrance at this rate yeah bonkers um, bonkers bonkers yeah, you, soon you, loud out you. again.
1: I have I, I've not bought a playstation I, th- I think it would be disastrous <laughs> if I did because I'm, I'm quite obsessive like if I get into something as you can probably tell I'd really get into mm, it yeah. and I just I would yeah so I, yeah. I, I <laughs> so I've missed out on all the, all the, all the virtual racing going oh, no, on but to, part of me is quite envious <laughs>
0: <laughs> brilliant thank you so much again um, for all and we'll get you on this again and just talk cars, cars, cars. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. Thanks, James. Thanks, you, Ben. Take cheers. Care. Bye.